I have no idea where this will lead us, but I have a definite feeling it will be a place both wonderful and strange. And welcome to the wonderful and strange Twin Peaks Logcast. I'm Khalil, and with me today is the smallish earthquake to my terrible fire. You know, I'll take the lower natural disaster. I don't think I need to be the bigger thing this time. I think I'm, I, I, I think I like the salty because I think I killed less people. So I think that that's a good thing to open with as the Unplugged Professor, the one who ki- kills less than Khalil. Today we're talking about Welcome to Twin Peaks, the access guide to the town yes uh the access guide this little green book of about 111 pages with a little cherry pie in the front of it khalil this was an interesting find not only do we somehow come across it says used good condition very good but it's actually yeah like i was about to say very good it's Looks like I actually picked it up recently, and that's not the case. This is not something in print right now. You can probably find it off of Amazon for a certain sum of money for, like, again, only Mm -hmm. used. But no, genuinely, I'm very excited to talk about this one. Content warnings are a bit different this time around, as the general vibe of this book is that it is a travel guide to a fictional town. Yes. um, And it's not as heavy as the series itself or any of the spinoffs. I will say that the book, it sometimes shows its age um, and potential biases, whether intentional as part of the fictional world or just maybe from the authors, which there are many. But um, there are moments where it will refer to Native Americans or indigenous people as kind of like generally Indian or Ameri- American Indian or Amer- what was the word they used? Amer-Indian Amer-Indian. Or American Indian. So some kind of not as common like phrasing anymore. Like a strange anymore. fusion. Yeah. And then there's references to the idea of Oriental rather than necessarily a specific Asian culture. Yeah. Um, it's pretty minimal. But if we bring those things up during the pod, uh, those are not necessarily our words. It's a lot of times the words the book uses. There's a lot of points in which it very much blurs a tone from the overall author mm-hmm. of, authors rather of the book as well as this very like tourist-esque feel throughout so um yeah i don't know which parts are serious and which parts are not at times it, it does get really strange because in the fiction of the story it is implied that this book is the result of Andrew Packard requesting it get made after his death inside of his will right because he cares so much about people and the person who's mostly credited here, I believe he's, is, is he mentioned in Andrew's letter by name, right? Yes, he is. Is, 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 is Richard dr- Saul Worman. He relies on Richard Saul Worman, editor-in-chief uh, of the Twin Peaks, I believe, Gazette? Or? Yeah, which would be all fine and dandy if Richard Saul Worman was just a new character invented for the book, but he's an actual person. <laughs> uh, he is the co-creator here, Richard Saul Worman, who is also the founder of TED Talks, like, in real life, like... This person is that person. I will mention that looking through the book right now, it is not Twin Peaks Gazette. It just says of this book. So yes, it is of the series of access guides out there from this person who's a real person. Cleo, when I was talking to you about this, I just assumed it was a new character in no. Twin Peaks. No, actual TED Talk man, Worman. And so this book was a collaboration with a publication that made access guides for real cities. Yes. As far as I know, this is the only fictional one they ever made. So... <laughs> Whenever we encounter this sort of language where it sounds potentially like of its time, I can't tell if it's on purpose as part of a characterization of like 
the Twin Peaks community and how they felt about certain things. Yes. Or if it's just because it was written by this real person in the 90s and it wasn't a character. Yeah, about 1991, if I'm not mistaken, from the copyright found in the first page. And that sounds about right, too, with the release of, you know, season two going into Firewalk with me. Um, uh, writers also include here Greg Almquist, Trisha Brock, Robert Engels, Lisa Friedman, and Harley Payton. So some familiar names in terms of the Twin Peaks staffing. Oh, absolutely. It seems with, that... with some input from David Lynch and Mark Frost, but the exact amount of it, how involved they were, I think is pretty unclear. Mm-hmm. So again, lots of thumbs and lots of soups. Or is it <laughs> one soup? I don't know. Does this feel like one soup or multiple soups? It feels like one big soup of multiple flavors. It's like a sea of soup, but you can kind of like see off in the distance where like the clam chowder a starts to mix soup. it in with the overall uh, chicken broth. So A kaleidoscope. A kaleidoscope, indeed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Spoiler warnings go out for the original Twin Peaks, quite obviously. Fire walk with me. Um potentially the secret diary of Laura Palmer, uh, special features we might bring in maybe. And then eh, movies by David Lynch, unlikely, but unlikely. we have watched everything through lost highway. We have a lot and, of things uh, inside of our brain. The straight that story. Things might come up. Yeah. Maybe the straight story will matter a lot in our conversation <laughs> here. Uh, trivia. I didn't really uh, find very much on this book. I tried. There uh, wasn't much. You, you did find some things, apparently. Mostly like, on Reddit. Reddit. Yeah, there's a few Reddit threads I'm going to say. Source cite. is all of Reddit. Yeah. <laughs> this this book is not talked about a ton. I might be missing something here. but You might be missing something, but uh, I, I'm surprised. I'm surprised you didn't find more on this because yeah. this seems this seems like a very fun, unique case of like existing in general, this piece of media. It, it's got a weird sort of influence where I know that Mark Frost is implied to have, and as said, he read this um, uh-huh. when he was making Secret uh, History of Twin Peaks, meaning that this likely was something that Mark Frost went back to, mm-hmm. you know, a couple decades later when he was making his books. Yes. And it therefore does have a sort of lore significance potentially beyond its initial publication, but it is not as well known or well discussed as the other twin books, whether it's by Mark Frost or The Secret Diary of Laura Palmer. Uh, I do hear about it a little bit more than I hear about Diane in My Life, My Tapes, which we're going to get to later. So I I think it's kind of in that middle territory where it's known about, but I don't think a lot of people (laughs) have actually read this. So there's a decent chance, listener, you may not have read this yet. First of all, let's just say that if you're able to get your hands on this book, if you know someone who has it or you can find a cheap copy somewhere affordable to you, we encourage you to read it. Very much so. I especially, uh, and if there's anything to sell you directly on it, just like the cover, delicious cherry pie, on the back, a map of Twin Peaks, which also features Lynch Road that crosses into Frost Avenue, which is not too far from Highway J. Coincidences. All coincidences. Nervous about meeting Highway J tonight. fun things in this book, listener. I'm waving it at you because I want you to read it. So, generally, generally, how do you feel about the book? How, how I, do you feel about this? Because I'm mostly I, am positive. It's got a very interesting writing tone. It's sort of a cynical leaning into humorous tone where ostensibly this is a guy that's meant to celebrate the town and encourage people to explore it who aren't from here. But at the same time, while it's doing that, it's warning you and it's giving you clear indication to leave at all possible. (laughs) It feels like an indictment of the town pretending to be a recommendation. (laughs) And I think that's really curious. Also, 
my my brain is going to the timeline a lot when I read this. Yes. Because at one point there's a reference by the mayor that his a year ago he buried his brother, and that's um, Dwayne Milford talking about Dougie Milford. Yes. Which means that this book is chronologically after season two, I would imagine. And that leaves a lot of questions as we're continuing to read, and we read about Pete, or we read about Cooper, and it's like, where are, how are these people doing? Where are doing? we? How are we? Like, the biggest thing is, like, already we know time has been weird through, like, Twin Peaks, but there's certain events that happen through Twin Peaks sort of, like, timeline that yeah. I'd be surprised on us missing out on. So I'm assuming going forward that somehow this fits in past season two. I just don't know how. And and that's, the again, that larger question of, um, you know, how much do you read into this? Because a lot of times- I read into it a lot. It's a book, Khalil. A lot of <laughs> what's not said is almost more important than what is said. There's a lot of things that are just conveniently not brought up, which feel like major things to bring up. Yes. Like, was there a bank explosion recently that may have killed, like, major now, people remember, in the that town? that was not in Twin Peaks. That was off in a bank, off in the distance, wasn't it? I thought that was in Twin Peaks. Oh, I, I, thought, I thought it was an well, account it's, somewhere it's elsewhere. it's still the idea that, okay, let's say, I think it is in Twin Peaks. Let's say it's, I think it was Twin Peaks Saving and Loan. Pretty sure it was. But even if it wasn't, yeah. Audrey Horn being there, She's barely mentioned, but the Horn family's in this book. Audrey isn't brought up in this no, book. No, Audrey's not think. mentioned. No. Should be. It's kind of weird. And then Ben, Ben Horn's mentioned, the Horn family's mentioned. Pete Martell's actually mentioned quite extensively in this book. Yes. Andrew Packard's mentioned extensively in this book. And, and well, Packard family. Packard family, and it's Martell's, like, the Horn's they're all part of You think that bank thing would be at some point alluded to. And it's not. It's not. Instead, there's like funny little notes, like say, for example, when you bring up like Andrew yeah. Packard's name, it shows two dates, one showing his overall like first death and the other one bringing up his like birth year again, randomly with like a blank space afterwards. So almost implying, implying that he is still alive at the time this was released. Yes. But this is a year after Dougie died. Again, timelines and Twin Peaks are always messy. How does time work? We never know. This is all sorts of funky, but at the same but time. But I would assume a year after Dougie died is past season two finale, right? <laughs> yes. You would think so. Because they do reference in here like things with, okay. They don't say it outright with Josie, but there's a moment where it talks about Truman and Truman like admits to the person interviewing that he feels lonely sometimes. Yes. And I can only imagine that loneliness would be a thing he brings up if Josie's not around anymore, if but at no point does it mention Josie dying <laughs> or disappearing, which it's weird. Like they mention Josie, but they don't mention that she mysteriously disappeared and people sometimes hear her or see her face in architecture of the <laughs> great Northern. It's a little strange. It's a little strange. Uh, still, <laughs> is it wonderful? I think it's wonderful. I genuinely do. And for for my overall take onto the book, mm -hmm. I think that this is chocked full of information dealing with history, dealing with individual locations, dealing with people that are kind of like way, way in the background that right. have no need to be brought up inside the show. Uh, this is fantastic for anyone who wants to, say, for example... Run a tabletop RPG game mm -hmm. inside of the realm of Twin Peaks or even just like write overall fanfic in general about it. I think that it adds that little spice that I enjoy whenever it comes to like new flavors and locations from my mm -hmm. own background uh, as a game master and dungeon master, if you will. I There's not many shows that it would make sense to release something like this for it. Nope. And, uh, you know, I feel like... That in of itself makes this a curious piece of, like, fiction. And the biggest part is I love Curiosity Girl, yeah. and I, I'm thoroughly enjoying this. Again, if you get the chance, we are not covering everything no, in the book. No, I cut whole pages out of my notes to try to give you reason to go read this I thing. I held Khalil against his computer in order to make sure he shaved pages off his notes. I was held, 
and I was uncomfortable. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I can't get over the tone. I think that's my major thing I'm going to remember about this book, even outside the lore, is, is the way it's written. And, and with how many writers were involved, I don't know how much of this is any particular person. But the tone of this thing reads as so sarcastic at points. It seems like it's coming from an individual, like one person who's yeah. like written these. Which overall is good. Counts. It does feel con- it does feel consistent. Yes, uh, someone who absolutely adores coffee brings up coffee at every avenue he can for whenever what locations come through. He is very snarky whenever it comes to just like generally people, ex- unless you are a Packard yeah. or a Horn, in which they're amazing. Apparently, I, I want to give you kind of a, an example here, a couple excerpts uh, from the whittling section that's in the book. <laughs> Not the most important. section section in the book, I don't think, but it kind of illustrates the tone here. Yes. So, uh, quote, an unfortunate but common misconception about whittlers is that they are dumb. This is not true. They tend to be slow and occasionally a good deal duller than their knife blades. True enough. But stupidity is not a characteristic of them as a group. So the tone reading of like, you know, people say they're stupid. That's not really true. You shouldn't generalize. <laughs> but they are generally really dumb. Like, and it's just what? What is what is the tone here? And then um in the same section, the the, the humor of it, quote, whittling is basically carving a piece of wood with a knife. In fact, in Europe, whittling is called carving a piece of wood with a knife. It is never referred to as whittling. Where the term comes from is shrouded in mystery which is why whittlers are considered so enigmatic. And it's like, (laughs) what? And there's just certain things that it feels like the book was almost obligated to mention. I don't know if like they were told that they had to mention it by Mark Frost or David Lynch. Whittling is only in this book because it's a small thing that Dale Cooper does like a couple times in the series, right? But it's important enough that they thought thought they had to have a section for it. (laughs) And this is kind of the writing you get out of it is that sort of wording. Mm -hmm. This sort of flippant, sarcastic, cynical tone is in a lot of the sections. I like it. I think it gives it flavor. And it really makes it... Makes you wonder, like, who is supposed to have written this? Is this all supposed to be Worman, the real person? It's just mention him as editor-in-chief, so unless he's, like, editing his own writing. But in the world of Twin Peaks, he's the main person writing this, right? He's the editor-in-chief. Yeah. Like, again, listed as editor-in-chief. Maybe someone was sent out for Worman. Do, Worman got Do Robert back. Engels and Harley Payton exist in the universe of Twin Peaks as David well? David Lynch apparently does, or yes. someone who looks a lot like him. Yeah, there's And liter- I'm not talking about Gordon Cole. No, there's literally a photo in one of the sections. It's, like, under local right and Uh it's just a big photo that has clearly david lynch in like director mode talking to mark frost they're not dressed as characters this is not (laughs) gordon cole they are in a little page inside locals right next to fashion in which the fashion is emphasizing bobby briggs and james hurley it doesn't it doesn't say in the caption this is david lynch and mark frost But what does that do for the implications if you take that seriously? Because that Gordon Cole's already a character, but that's not Gordon Cole. <laughs> He's dressed as David Lynch. <laughs> so if you take it very seriously, this book does do weird things. Yeah. If you take it seriously enough. It does weird things even if you don't take it seriously. So the mayor opens up pretty early on with a message. Yeah. Uh, uh, good old Dwayne. And he gives advice to people who are thinking of going to Twin Peaks. And get his, out! His advice is to get, get out. Get out! Out into nature! The wording is so, I think it's, it's, it's such a <laughs> microcosm of the whole book. And I think it's done on purpose. But the advice of to get out and then a period, get out and enjoy the weather and whatever. Yep. Um, It's that tone of like warning, but also friendliness and it's like it's a whiplash right because when i first read the advice is to get out i don't think get out into nature right there's a whiplash um, Colleen, you need to leave 
Leave and embrace the night. The mayor also in the, in, well, not in the mayor section, but around here. Yes. Very important for our podcast. This is where the confirmation comes from uh-huh. that they recently discovered. In a 1990 census. That their own population was not 51,201, as the sign said, but it's actually 5,201.1. So two things to note. One is the, the, the tone of we recently discovered, which I think is funny. That they just like found out. Either it's a sarcastic remark on the sign, or it's the sense of they didn't exactly know. It just didn't feel right to the citizens to think that that was how many people they had. And then the clarification that there's five thousand two hundred one point one. To, to re-emphasize this, you've said five thousand two hundred and uh, one point one. No, that's not the case. This is five thousand one hundred twenty point one. You're moving a decimal over. It's not mixing up some of the jumbly numbers. So, regardless, still, what's a point one person? Right, right. So, sorry, numbers are not my strong suit. So, uh, <laughs> it says on the sign 51,201, but the decimal point, like you said, is messed up. So, it's actually 5,120.1. Yes, which, by the way, what's point one of a person, Khalil? Um, <laughs> Explain. I know you're not good with numbers, but can you at least be good with people to tell me like, what's Nikki. a tenth of a person? Little Nicky. <laughs> That's the one. Plus one, point That's one little Nicky. That's a point one of a person. Uh, the, 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 the Chalfonts with the <laughs> nephew, the grandson, don't really know if they're people or they're, you know, spiritual beings. Did someone like Waldo? write out one Waldo's tenth the point of a one? sentence? Waldo the bird? Waldo's dead. Yeah. Um, I don't know anymore. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is very strange, but that is the. It, if you want to call it retconning, I don't know. But this is this is vindication from way earlier in our pod when I was trying to explain this town was five thousand people, not fifty thousand. <laughs> Andrew Packard, like you said, is that weird uh, nineteen twenty six to nineteen eighty six, and then nineteen twenty six to blank, <laughs> implying he is still alive when this is released, which means he <laughs> may have survived the bank explosion. Which at that point, like. This is literally talking about like his will and to the citizens, if you will. So why would this be? His, is it just like will... it was too far gone and then they just had said, you know what? We've already sent someone out. We've taken time with this. No, this raises a lot of questions because when we were watching season two, Andrew Packard was not discovered alive by the community as a whole. Yes. The only people who really knew about that were in the, the household of the Packards. Yes. Josie knew about it. Pete knew about it. And that's most people. It That's it. Yes. Catherine. So the fact that this is like in the book published that Andrew Packard alive and was recently found to be alive that would imply that at this point it is public knowledge which would imply it is after where we saw in season two which would imply he survived the bank explosion either that or it was published around that point or before that point because books are a long they take a long time to craft if if his will was you know found and discovered whatever in 1986 that means that this book has been in development for over four years by 1991 right yeah so we're going on year five this book has taken four years to make, which feels like a while. I know books can take a while, but I'm yeah. also like, four years to make this little travel <laughs> book? I don't know. It, it feels like it's like a little longer than it should. So I don't know. And a lot of this information is more recent. Like a lot of this information is about the most recent stuff, like Dale Cooper's in here. <laughs> so how much of this book was made in the four years? And how much of this book was like, oh crap, Andrew Packard's still alive? <laughs> we got to make it seem like we followed his will. I think that, that's my headcanon. That's your headcanon? That they're that, just scrambling around yes, at different they points? They were like, okay, the guy's dead. He wanted us to make this book, but 
He's not going to know. But then when they came back, it's like, oh, crap, we actually have to make this thing. Like, like there was a guy that they sent down there, but then decided to, like, pull the project. They're like, okay, get yeah. your notes from beforehand. Get, pull them together. Uh, get someone out there. I think something Could Andrew Packard up. sue the town if they didn't follow his will or something? <laughs> like, I, I like the idea that they're like, crap, we have to make this now. That's my headcanon. I like that idea. Um, yeah, and then... Uh, he said he would bequeath an unspecified sum to the town and that the purpose of this book would be to extol and promulgate the many virtues and points of interest in our beloved community. Yes. He loves everyone in the community. He, by the they're way. all his family. They're all his family, he says. So, so <laughs> I, I'm going <laughs> to raise a lot of questions about trusting Andrew Packard living everyone's family. <laughs> what? I mean, the thing is, <laughs> what are you going to say about daddy Packard? That's going to be bad. There's a lot of, Okay, don't call him Daddy Packer. That's kind of weird. Um, but uh, but but there's so much in this book that makes me distrust business people that the series already had it. Now there's more fuel to the fire, pun intended, that I do kind of question trusting Andrew Packard that much. Yeah. Or Catherine, for that matter. Yeah. Or Josie. Or Ben. Anyway. That's a list. Do you believe that this book extols and promulgates the many virtues and points of interest in the beloved Twin Peaks community? I don't know what extols or promulgates means, and I didn't bother to Google. Does I just it, thought that there was lots them. of BS coming out from does it. Does it celebrate the virtues of the community? Sure. But those virtues seem more like sins. Yeah, I feel like it's got like a bit of a... I don't... I think it's... The author kind of, to me, reads as constantly doing both a compliment and an insult. <laughs> and I, and I feel like it's a sort of ambivalence that the author feels mm -hmm. that while well, the character of the author, I don't know how to word this. <laughs> it, it does feel like the people who are making this in universe. Yes. Have a mixed feeling. Mm -hmm. There's a sort of almost stiff upper lip by the tone of the book, where it makes me feel like it kind of casts judgment on a lot of the people in the town mm -hmm. and a lot of their traditions. Yes. So even while it's bringing them up, it's also just kind of like rolling its eyes. Not at everything. <laughs> I think it genuinely thinks Norma's cooking is good. The book. But there are other things where it makes me kind of wonder. Kind of wonder a little bit about it. We get an extensive history of the Packards, Martells, and Horns, which we already knew from the show the show we know from the show we're like major families but this hits home the idea that they've been around since the beginning basically the very beginning the, the 1880s the, basically the founding of the town is completely centered around three families at, at the uh, beginning being the packards the martells and the horns and the beginning of twin peaks was mostly an untidy collection of refugees trappers and thieves yes just this sort of mixture of um People of questionable backgrounds, not saying that obviously every refugee is, is bad in Twin Peaks, but it's a collection of people who maybe are running away from a past or they're trying to start new. Yes. But they're all also criminal elements from the very beginning with the form of the thieves. Very much so. Like the, some of these boxes are multiple checks, if you will. There's a lot of this book that does deal with sort of the machinations of corporate interest over the areas. Mm -hmm. And also alongside that, this sense of colonization and uh, the book is never fully committed to one tone over the other because a lot of it, I can't read the sarcasm versus the sincerity. <laughs> but it does have a por portion here for 1890, quote, the region's most valuable resource, its vast forest, remained untapped until James Packard and wife Ungwin arrived two years later. What's interesting to me is the way the tone is there that, like, the forest remained untapped. In other words, like, 
fine and natural and safe and like not destroyed yet. And yep. but like on one hand, the the mill becomes like the cornerstone. It's like the number one. The the mills um, are the number one force of labor in the community. They employ the most people. Yes. They're clearly the the heart of the community. But also, they are the destruction of the natural environment. And we learn about how the Packards and the Martells and the Horns got land. Yes. And oftentimes it was through like very shady means where they would mislead, deceive, trick, or just, you know, shortchange the indigenous people of the area out of this land. And, um, you know, not good. Literally, they traded land for two cough drops because they thought that that was appropriate. So when I when I read about the, you know, the most valuable resource remain untapped, it's like, it, well, it, it, maybe it, that should have been untapped. It's the biggest lean into yeah. the Packard bias as well as the horn bias that is present throughout the book. Now, now James Packard's wife, Ungwin, is actually a very interesting side character that's just in there for a little bit, but leaves some things to, to, to percolate over. Yes. Ungwin, it says, dabbled in the mystic arts that were popular at the time. Uh, and she was institutionalized briefly when she claimed her true home was located beyond the solar system in the mysterious land of Bloon. And she spent the rest of her life in and out of sanitariums. Yep. So the sort of history of Twin Peaks with mental health and spirituality going as far back as James Packard's wife. Literally the start of the town. The idea of space. Also, Cooper, 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 written in the stars, mm -hmm. Saturn, et cetera, et cetera. That's in here. Um, and Ungwin makes a, a curious appearance at the very end of this book. Yeah, she does. Well, yeah. she doesn't, but she does. Put a pin in that. Put a pin, pin in, in it. that. Regarding James Packard's mill, quote, the fact that the work was intolerable and the wages seemed horrid seem to have little effect on this optimistic band of class victims. Mm. So there's this sort of, again, the tone of the writing. On one hand, it's like, man, the mill, it employs so many people. It's such a great resource. By the way, the fact that working <laughs> conditions were awful and the, thing was the wages they paid terribly, yep. they were still optimistic to work for the Packard family, weren't they? They were so happy and optimistic. And for the ones that either, like, we're kind of like tossed to the side, if you will, mm -hmm. that weren't so accepted. You know, the Canadians and the Norwegians. Guess where they went? They went off to the Martell ones, which, by the way, apparently there's a little bit of a difference, you know, like the these like individuals that despite the fact that, you know, the wife went in and out of the mm -hmm. sanitarium and it seems like there was a conflict. But let's just ignore that and sweep that up. But yeah. let's focus on the Martells and just the history of them and them starting to sawmill, grabbing these overall leftover uh -huh. people and making something of their own there, lives. There's kind of this consistent trend among the three families and, and some more than others, but the sense of like, there's some people who are just born for the business because they're cunning or they're shrewd or they're gamblers or they're thieves or a combination of all those. And then sometimes literally the world wants to kill you. Or there are people who are more withdrawn. They're not really made for business. They're either more into na nature, spirituality. They're just not me meant for that. And they usually get, you know, destroyed. They usually yeah, get taken by over. Nature. Either by nature or by the corporate interests buying each other out. So it seems like there's the vicious world of business where some people are made for it and some people are not. I, and the people who are made for it consistently are winning here. I get what you're saying. I do. Mm -hmm. I do. And I do agree in a structural sense. But it's hard to own things when you're dead by being struck by lightning, downed by gangrene. So the Martell family has a lot of misfortunes in the book. I might've missed some, but these are a list of some of those things. <laughs> 
A mysterious fire destroyed the Martell home, forcing them out of St. Louis to the Twin Peaks area. Yeah. They were going to go past Twin Peaks, but then their mules died, leading them into Twin Peaks. Almost faded. By the way, turpentine poisoning. By the way, gangrene. By the way, they had to sell the mill to the Superior Packer family when their business was not going very well. By the way, wife struck dead by lightning. <laughs> And then by the time we're in the more modern age of Twin Peaks, there's the irony of Pete marrying into the Packard family with Catherine and the complete subjugation, not only of their mill into the Packard mill, but also he is now just the ball and chain to Catherine and um, what that means. He's just <laughs> now, a middleman at that point. Now, as far as I'm concerned, um, throughout the series, I didn't take Pete to be an unlucky man other than for his marriage. Yeah, for a Martell, he's not doing too bad. <laughs> he's really, really not doing too bad. Meanwhile, the Horn family is moving into the area, and yes. um, we get we get a weird coincidence. Nothing more, I'm sure. Um, yes. And where the Horn family, they started up a general store that was competing against someone, other business. Yes. And then the other business that was there before them, just mysteriously a fire, mysteriously leveled a fire. it to the post. Mysteriously a fire happened. And you hate to see it happen. You hate to see it happen. Overall, the mysterious fire that happened to the Thor's trading post ends up sort of like burning down. And it just so happens that they also got a replica of the totem pole that was inside of the Thor's trading post. They must have really liked the business, you know, yeah. to just sort of like commemorate them after they burnt down. Well, it's, it's you know, once you establish a near monopoly over your industry, you really want to take advantage. I mean, um, make take memory of your fallen enemies. Mm. Yes, yes, yes. It's, it's, uh, it's, you know, very heavily implied. There's a series of arsons throughout this book that, again, because, maybe because of the way that Twin Peaks established certain motifs, it's almost like the authors here felt like they wanted to repeat them. But the things in the show that just felt like, oh man, Ben and Catherine are very sneaky, bad people. No, it's their whole family lineage. Whole family. Which, I don't know if, you know, depending on the reader or the viewer, that might make things feel Better or worse. Better but or it, worse. It makes it seem like they're just another series of horns and packers. It even emphasizes it more so because Ben isn't like fully Ben. He's Ben Jr. Yeah. Like it's a legacy. But the idea of of a of a Ben using arsonry to attack an opponent in the combat of business. Well, you would never do that. Not unprecedented. Not, not a single time. Of course. Like you said before, this was the unfortunate incident that happened to Thor's trading post. Mm -hmm. And uh Side note on that. So there's a little bit of a history of this trading post that used to be kind of the general store before Horn took over. Yeah. And originally, I'm an, I'm apologize if I say the pronunciation wrong. It was originally called uh, Waka Hanawak, okay? Which, you know, takes more of a indigenous language element, right? Yep. And then that got changed over to Thor's trading post. This is more me editor editorializing and kind of, you know, thinking for myself, not so what the book is saying. Mm. But it is interesting to me that the language and cultural element of the area originally was the name of the store. Yep. Then gets branded over with this more, I don't know if anglicized would be the word, but this, um, you know, sort of European pagan element. Yep. So... One, it's the replacement of the more uh, indigenous native language to the colonizing culture and language. But mm. then also, it's not the Christian one. Nope. It is still the pagan one. Yep. Which we only get with uh, Norse mythology. We get uh, Mr. Judge, was it Sternwood, with the Valhalla? Yep. We get that guy. But otherwise, it's not really a thing very much explicitly. Nope. But considering some of the secret societies this book hints at... There is still an element of the occult and conspiracy theories and spiritual communities 
outside the fringe of Christianity, but mm-hmm. still decidedly European in origin yep. that are popping up in the area. Um, you know, and even the, the Wakahana walk store, it's not like that was run by the indigenous people or something that was still a, an appropriation, I believe, but at least in that sense, it was representing the language and culture of the area Yep, that has now been cleansed over. And then it's burned because now the horn department store has taken over again, <laughs> unfortunate coincidence that happened to benefit the horns universally. Unfortunately, unfortunately, indeed. And then when the smallish earthquake of 1905 hit, that's the what horns, it's called, by the way. Like, yes, it's it is called the smallish earthquake in capital letters. <laughs> the Horn family, you know, they grew stronger. They built it up into the Horns department store we now know and love. Mm-hmm. That has no other shady dealings to worry about. No other shady dealings to have to deal with whatsoever. Meanwhile, in the ancient times of 1896, the terrible fire, as it is called, terrible fire being capitalized, mm-hmm. uh, destroyed the old opera house in the town of Twin Peaks, which then later would get rebuilt in like 1916 or something like that. 1916, like, two decades later, 20 war, years war, later. War one-ish kind of time periods around there. Yes. Uh, and then it would go de- go vacant for like four decades until uh, 1969, mm-hmm. at which point the brief anecdote that there was a rock group called Guess Who, who caused such a tumult that the town council for a while banned rock concerts in Twin Peaks <laughs> unless there were written assurances that uh, the performance would be, performers would behave properly. I mention that only because there is going to be that history of musical performance in Twin Peaks with, like, the Roadhouse. Yes. We don't ever, I don't think, ever hear about or see the old opera house. We just see the Roadhouse now. Yes. Um, and I feel like with the youth culture, that's the main place they go for performances. The old opera house might be where they had the courtroom, though, wasn't it? When they had uh, Judge Sternwood come in? They did have the Judge Sternwood inside of the overall Was court. that the Roadhouse, too, that had the courtroom? I think it might have been the Roadhouse. I think that they basically used it as an area for them to have a jury, mm. if you will. But then again, we have to remember that the main performance we've seen at the Roadhouse wasn't really rock and roll. It was mostly just like, performers such as julie cruz canon character yeah. in twin peaks uh that also um had another band i think still just, was julie cruz just the time in which we actually had heavier music was inside of fire walk with me which we went all the way to canada for just put a pin in the idea of rock music in twin peaks <laughs> we'll do we'll do the- those who are listening may know what i'm talking about depending <laughs> on what you've seen um Ben Horn was a major figure in this restoration, by the way. Yes. Um, not, not in 1916, but later on. Uh, he restored the theater's interior and exterior according to the original architect's design, and he kind of wanted to have this be an area where Twin Peaks citizens could go to enjoy the movies, to enjoy cinema, to enjoy experiences. It, yes, they tried art. Re- yeah, they tried once refashioning it to the overall like uh, silver screen, if you will. So the fact that he takes it back to specifically that for the opera house, for the means of cinema, and especially how we see yes. him deal with film. Uh, I, I think it's nice. I think it's like a nice little detail that adds to it all. But not only that, it makes it add more that Horn is a hero to the community. Yes. He's amazing. Quote, in a world lacking in virility and in need of a hero, Twin Peaks is honored to have Ben Horn as one of its most prominent citizens. I don't read sarcasm in that tone, but it's hard to tell with this particular book. Whether that's supposed sure? to be a joke or not. Are we sure that this wasn't written by Dick? Like, this, this Dick is, Tremaine is the ghostwriter for this? It's, it's very confusing. <laughs> um, we find out that at university, his, Stanford University, his nickname was Peacock, which you can make all the jokes you want about that. Um, but Peacock was his name. And, quote, he pursues with gusto everything life offers, which I agree, Ben Horn certainly does that. He does? Um, life is not always offering. Sometimes he just takes it unwillingly. Do crime. 
he does crime. He does crime. But he's a hero. Also, I do enjoy, again, whether it's a sarcastic joke or whether it's an unintentionally, I like, dramatic, moment of dramatic irony where we know as viewers the double meaning. Mm -hmm. But, quote, Ben Horn is a firm believer in across-cultural relations and the restorative power of song. He supports joint U.S.-Canadian enterprises and often travels north in pursuit of things. Vote Ben Horn today. So they don't ever mention specifically One-Eyed Jacks, right? No. No, no. They don't really. mention one-eyed jacks. Uh, well, they do. It, it's called things. Things. They don't <laughs> mention crime. It's called things. Because, like, by the end of season two, people don't necessarily know that he was the arson man, right? No, not really. And this is also where, if it's a year after Dougie's death, is Ben Horn Mr. Mister Goodman, Mr. Carrot? Look, Mr. fire Pine just runs in the family, multiple families even. So, like, if 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 Ben Horn, by the time of this publication, is the reformed good Ben Horn yeah. that got his head smashed in by Doc Hayward at a fireplace, yeah. he is alive currently <laughs> by the book's tone, right? <laughs> he is from the he's, book's tone It sound, doesn't alive. sound like he's dead. It is not, it, he is one of the individuals he is not was and if i am just was of individual let me put it let me put it this way listener if you're listening and you're frustrated because you understand the twin peaks timeline perfectly you think everything is linear clear and obvious about the twin peaks timeline Mm -hmm. and you want to tell me that like no obviously we know exactly when this book takes place and you're being silly understand that we just aren't as good as you like listener if you figure that out you good job I am I am lost. When I try to read this book, I'm like, okay, a year after Dougie, that should be after season two. So this is, to my understanding, <laughs> indicating the survival of Andrew Packard, Pete Martell, and Ben Horn from the season no, two finale. No, what you just don't understand is that everything in Shad, this book, okay? They just got yeah. the note at the very last second, a year after, and all the notes were just on the table the whole time. But it doesn't mention Josie's fate. It doesn't mention Leo at all. Leo Johnson, to be fair, is not a big part of the town. But it doesn't mention Leo Johnson, so we don't know about him. It doesn't mention Wyndham Earl at any given point. Yep. It doesn't mention Annie Blackburn at any given point. But it does mention other season two characters, like Dick Tremaine. I'm just kind of like trying to read certain things. It doesn't mention Nadine enough to know her circumstances. So I'm like just desperately clawing to find out like, where things are. The Miss Twin Peaks conversation kind of makes me think it's like after, based on who the judges are mentioned to be. Yes, because they do mention specifically the three judges being Norma Jennings, Dick Tremaine, as well as the mayor. Yeah. So... Well, let's say you just do it every year and it's expected. That's what I mean. Is It's, it's uh, hard. It's, it's hard to figure out. There's a out. lot of hard things so, in here. So, again, I think it's indicating the survival of those characters. We on the same page, Professor? No. No? No. Because I can still also believe that this was on a desk for a while and took a while to publish, and that note might have been a last-second entry. That's it's fair. Weird. Like, the, that's the thing. Like, I can make a bunch of assumptions everywhere, but at that point, I'm just walking in circles. And that's the thing is, there's an e- there's an easy out. If we ever think of things as being retconned, if we say, oh, this book implies this, and then we find out later, we can always just say this was rushed. Yep. <laughs> not in the real world, but in the fictional world of Twin Peaks. Yes. We can have a headcanon that this book was not planned for uh, 1986 or whatever, but was rushed together the moment they found out Andrew Packard wasn't dead. <laughs> and that everything is dubious because it was a rushed job. <laughs> that could smooth over any possible loopholes or red airings or plot holes in this entire book. Would you be satisfied with that reason? If uh, something later contradicts this book, would you be fine just saying this book is unreliable because it was rushed? 
in I, the universe of Twin Peaks. Possibly. I, I think I'm going to have to feel things yeah. out as okay. we kind of like work okay. our way towards there. I, I, I think that maybe I might be able to smooth things over. But speaking about smoothing things over, mm. why don't we talk about the smooth relationships <laughs> between... <laughs> The first inhabitants. And the new inhabitants, yes. Yeah. So um, there's a group, different groups of uh, peoples that are mentioned as having uh, likely migrated uh, northwest from Asia. Uh, the cyber people, as they're called, breaking into different families, uh, including the Snoqualmie, the Flathead tribe we were mentioned a few times, the Nez Perce, and uh, as well, again, apologies if I mispronounce some names here, the Cayuse, the Yakima, the Spokane, the Umqua, and the Methau. I, I believe that's the full list. Um, they're, they're mentioned here in the book. Um, the guide says that they don't have much knowledge of the early history of these settlers because of their reliance on perishable materials. That means traces of their lives have been lost to time, but also, quote, because some of them developed paranoid tendencies, becoming exclusively secretive and morbid. So there's that. I will bring up, Khalil, that it is also because of a lack of pottery fragments. Yes, and it isn't, that's the perishable it, materials. It, it isn't due to their reliance on perishable materials. It's dur to their okay. reliance. There are on some typos material. in this book. Which, it's dur. Which, look, we can all say all of the typos in this book are because in universe, they found out Andrew Packard, Andrew Packard knocked on the door of the fictional, the fictional Worman, right? And said, I'm alive. And they're like, it's so good of a line. He had to say it twice. They yeah, had to check I'm up on so, things because he didn't see an access guide in town. There's a lot of Twin Peaks podcasts that, you know, are very entertaining, very researched. But can any podcast for Twin Peaks say they reference the line, I'm alive, as more than, many times, as, many as, times we as we do. We liked that line delivery. <laughs> we never planned to bring it up. But we bring it up so often. So often. So often. <laughs> anyway, there's a bunch of stuff involving the history of uh, the different peoples that lived here. Uh, one particular element they talk about is that these patriarchal societies of indigenous peoples highly regarded objects such as their canoes, hides, weapons, heraldic crests, slaves, and little stones they called pebbles, which they threw at people they considered stupid or too short. This is in the book. Yeah? You have to contend with it. No, I don't want to. <laughs> There's also a religious ceremony that's described where the host would honor his guests by giving them his wealth or destroying his wealth, with one account mentioning a host who cut himself up and guests took with them a hand or toe or thigh of their host. Yeah, I'm thinking this is a heavily biased entry. There is some reference to cannibalism uh, among some of the secret societies here. Um, so there's, there's just some sort of questionable either bias or this idea that certain groups of these people are, are dabbling in a bit more um, violent behavior than others, potentially. Mm. Um, I have no doubt that, that cannibalism can definitely be a part of certain indigenous practices. I don't know in the real world how common that was in like the Washington part of the United States in these different communities. Um, I don't know if these things are 100% accurate. I would question them. And even if they aren't as accurate in our history, does that mean it gets a free pass in the fiction? Can they just retcon it? That feels a little gross if they do take these real cultures and just add things like that. Yep. So I'm hoping that this is either, you know, I'm hoping it's accurate, to be honest. Yeah. Just it, for the sake of the ethics of the book. Yep. Honestly, like, that, they are very much towing a line whenever they include, like, real people, real history, but also, like, trying to put up a narrative that... From what I'm understanding, reading from the book, especially the comment yeah. on Pebbles, uh, that they are creating a very damaged historical take, yeah. which does come from 
biases from people. The, the tone which is, is real, but yeah. the tone is so tongue in cheek that it's really hard to separate what jokes are just the general tone of this book making fun of everyone and which ones feel either like mean spirited or just like ahistorical. Yeah. Um, not necessarily in line with, with history. And this is where like, you know, <laughs> Presser can yell at me, do your research, but yeah. no amount of research would make me an expert on these cultures. I could, I could Actually, go, no, uh, there can be a finite amount of research. I'm not you can part do of those to become commun- an expert. Okay. I'm not part of these communities. I, I could read a Wikipedia article and that's the extent of my quick research. I mm. haven't studied these cultures. I haven't, I am not part of it. So this is where I don't have the authority authority really i feel to point out one way or the other i would just raise question yep i do not have answer yep raise question raise question a lot especially with these this chapter a lot of things in this then there's parts where the book does seem to sympathize more with the communities that were largely taken advantage of by the likes of the horn family or the packard of the martells quote this is from the the writer here, the text. It was, and sadly still is, unfortunate that the Anglo mind did not comprehend the religious significance of these traditions and continually misrepresented them. Um, it also referred, like you said, to those various stories of them approaching Native peoples and wanting to buy the land or asking who owned the land. Yep. And this was not necessarily the way that these peoples envisioned their land as being private property. Nope. Um but again, there's also that tongue-in-cheek joking, which I I don't always mind it. Like, there's one part on there where it has, like, this this skull with hair, and at the top it says, an early resident of the area, and then below, now resides in the county museum. Yep. And it's like, I don't mind the dark humor of that. Mm-hmm. I think that's fine. Um, there is a, also, by the way, speaking of side elements, a very important pin that I, I'm going to try my darndest to remember when we get to the actual thing I'm talking about. I'm afraid. But on page 14... I'm on page 14. I think I know what you're going to bring There's up. There's a strange creature that looks kind of like an owl, but almost mixed with like a frog and like <laughs> the, human features. Like it's set as a fr- flying frog, if you will. And a lot of the features, yes. If the frog were to stand up, it would look, and if you squinted at it, it would look like an owl. Yes. So it says, uh, Chinook legends describe the appearance long ago of an ancestress of the frog clan. They tell us of a house floating in the middle of a lake. On the house sits a woman, her knees, breasts, eyebrows, and the backs of her hands covered with flying frogs. Ever since that time, the flying frog has been viewed as a special crest. Yes. It's not elaborated on much beyond that. It's just kind of this thing that's here. Yep. Um, Put a massive pin in that. <laughs> and um, what's simultaneously funny to me is like, as this podcast, I'm aware that this sounds ludicrous to the professor. He's wondering why. But to the listener, if you know why, this is a big deal. <laughs> this is a very big deal with implications. <laughs> so again, if nothing else, maybe try to find the book to look at page 14 if you know what I'm saying. Very well. Is this, again... Like mm-hmm. there's only so much I can look into per se. Yes. Is this uh is this a full on legend or is this like the fictional legend? What I what I will say, Professor, is that if you do a rudimentary googling of the phrase Chinook flying frog, the first result on Google is a Boeing CH forty seven D Chinook helicopter. So I'm gonna say assume that it's talking about a helicopter. Um, what I, I'm saying is on Google, it doesn't pop up anything right away. Is there something buried in a library of books? <laughs> Mayhaps. <laughs> Mayhaps. Mayhaps. But uh, according to Google, it's a helicopter. And that's my, <laughs> that's my understanding. 
Good. Massive pin in a helicopter. I'll keep it there. By the way, flying in on their helicopters in the year of the uh, 18th century, the year of the 18th century, <laughs> with their helicopters, uh, were explorers from uh, the Northwest. Or, no, they're approaching the Northwest. And um, they arrived mainly for the beavers. They wanted to kill the beavers for their beaver hats. Yep. This is where most of the settlements were occurring um, of European settlements. The reason I bring this up primarily is that there is this trend being brought up where they would go and hunt the beaver to near extinction or total extinction and then move on to the next area. Hence the term split beaver. Yeah. Also, this is foreshadowing of the pine weasel. When will these people, largely white people settling in and colonizing. When will they stop killing the animals of the forest? When we're done making hats, which is never. The pine weasel slippers will be so comfy. On our heads? I don't know if the weasels are even big enough for slippers. I guess it depends on your your child foot could fit in these. (laughs) Let's not measure foot sizes to animals, shall we? Because that makes me very afraid. Well, you can make, like, fur... Slippers, right? That's a thing. <laughs> I mean, they'd be really comfy and warm. I don't wear fur generally. I'm I'm nope. I, I'm animal rights person over here, but <laughs> I can still joke about it. Come on. Um, there's a mentioning of Lewis and Clark passing through the area. This is something to put a minor pin in because it will come up later, Lewis and Clark. But also the uh, come up later in uh, outside this book. I mean, yes. But um, there's also a mentioning here. That uh, when they were around, they were leaving the area of present-day Missoula, Montana. Yes. Missoula, Montana! Yes. The expedition of Lewis and Clark made a strange detour to the north. So again, there's a sort of inexplicable element behind Lewis and Clark's travel that the guy just kind of brushes over. <laughs> but like, you know, put a pin in that for later. I'm just saying. <laughs> um I think the last of the early settlers that I wanted to bring up specifically is Dominic Renault. Because his story is just weird. Not so much. It doesn't this is have like the first mention of a Renault. Yeah, I don't know if it has as many implications or you know effect on the community as the the Martels and the Packards and the Horns. But Dominic Renault is just weird as an element in the story. He just kind of like stumbles down into Twin Peaks, if you will. He was looking and, for the Northwest Passage. Yep. Um, the pilot, I guess, of Twin Peaks, <laughs> and uh, stumbling down from Montreal, Canada. And uh, he gave up his dream of finding the Northwest Passage when a tribe of local indigenous people laughed in his face. Just thought he was a comical, funny man. (laughs) And at that point, he decided to become a stand-up comedian. And the rest of his life from that point on appears in fragments and in legends. So take these with a boulder of salt. He supposedly believed himself able to communicate with animals which naturally led to an extreme case where it was suggested that he mated with owls and his anguished voice became part of them in the endless and misty forests. Quote, somewhere in there I I started a quote and then I ended the quote just now. With his fate being unknown, how much of Dominic Renault's story you take to be true, how much is meant to be legend, it's a mix. The writing very much, I feel, leans into that gossipy tone. Like, it's just like, yeah, we don't know much about this guy. This is probably what happened. He also just might have been on some sort of hallucinogens. Because knowing the Renault family history later, (laughs) if if the Horn family is a history of arsonry and the Packard family is a history of shady business dealings with their their workers and their uh, mill, I'm not too... 
Is it too much of a stretch to assume the Renault family might have been involved in substances of the past? <laughs> Maybe that would explain the man talking to the animals in the woods. Maybe. I just so. don't know how the Renault lineage continued with owls. And in the 1800s, I mean, obviously the drugs would not have necessarily been cocaine. You know? Yeah, might have been. Be, I'm pretty there, sure it was like med, medicinal around that time. Uh, maybe, but there definitely would have been things in the in the forest potentially that could have created <laughs> effects. You know, certain certain plants, certain mushrooms. Certain, maybe, perhaps, maybe. perhaps so. You know what these uh, these woods have for sure, though, Professor. What do these woods have? Lumber mills. They do have lumber mills. The they do have lumber. They have lumber wood. Mills. Twin Peaks. The, you know, the trees, the place with the trees. The, the opening opening song visuals of the cutting of wood was true after all. There are indeed mills there, in Twin Peaks. There are sawmills, yes. Yes, that's... It took us to not, episode 52 of our podcast to confirm it. No, it we did not. We, we've been over woods. So, uh, early early on in the book, we, we, we learn that uh, these are some of the safest lumber mills in the country. I feel like reading the rest of the book, this is a Faustian bargain. I feel like there is there is devilry afoot. I don't think anyone made any deals. I think someone just went onto land saying, "Hey, that's mine. Let's make wood." I mean, James and then Packard started making wood. James Packard made a deal where he gave cough drops to local indigenous people in exchange for swaths of land. Yep. Um, you know, good good decisions, good business decisions were made. No, no. I mean, good for him. Nope. Well, the, arguably. The, I guess, to me, the Faustian bargain more comes in so far as these lumber mills are being acclaimed as safe in parts of the book, but in the other parts of the book, it's very clearly established that throughout time, from the inception, these woods have also been, like, horribly hazardous because of the, like, management styles of the Packard and the Martell families. As I went over before, like, barbecues were implemented for, like, a day, if you will. That, that That's a big sort of, like, trade-off, is that as long as you guys don't cause any accidents through the year, we can have a barbecue. Yeah. And that's their best real effort towards well, this. Well, and it gets worse, though. So the way this part is described, quote, as an incentive to on-the-job safety, the company sponsors a barbecue to reward the workers when a quarter is passed without accident or injury. Yes. And the department managers do the cooking. Yes, but it only happened once. It's been more effective than ta tacking up the safety posts on the walls, and the last barbecue in 1972 is still being talked about. Because it's the only one. Yeah, so even, like, nearly 20 years later... They have never had a year without an accident since. And instead of doing something about it, the management is just like, ah, we gave them the barbecue incentive. I feel like we, it, we dangled the barbecue carrot over their faces on a stick with string. Yeah. And it's almost as if I'm thinking to myself, maybe it just wasn't recorded. Like, to be completely honest, from the look of the chart, I'm not completely confident that there wasn't like a form of just showing, yeah, we are doing something in here. You know, at one point there was a plant boss, Artie Moulton, who said, quote, safety is paramount. Nope. After profit and management perks. There it is. But it's often overvalued. Reality is the name of the whatchamacallit, end quote. So, called is potential lawsuits if we actually had an appropriate is, amount of lawyership. In universe, what gets published in the official guidebook to the town yeah. in universe. So there's just this flagrant disregard for workers. Um, and it really recontextualizes in the pilot when Catherine Martell there was a, there was this worker here randomly who like was talking to her and she just fired him without a hes moment's hesitation just for saying like saying the wrong thing at the wrong time and upsetting her. So yes, the mills are safe 
And yes, the mills do employ large amounts of people in the economy of Twin Peaks, but also they seem to be incredibly hazardous in a way that's preventable. Um, the management does not care. And then we also have the sort of shady dealings involving the Ghostwood project that happened in the show, where not only have Ben Horn, who maybe later reforms, debatably, but Catherine uh, vying for this sort of power struggle to further remove more of the woods, to further destroy more of the natural environment of Twin Peaks. You know, those sorts of things. Speaking of Catherine, by the way, she wasn't the only uh, formidable businesswoman in the Packard uh, lineage. No, in fact, there was someone extremely formidable and very influential in the overall lumber mill industry, and that had to be Daisy. Mm -hmm. Good old Daisy Packard uh, is actually one of the main inspirations for Andrew Packard later on for continued business dealings because it seems that she really did strong arm the industry itself with all sorts of inventions, implementations, and... Just pieces of what would be made for the mill today. Meanwhile, her brother uh, is the one that took mm -hmm. over the mill business and kind of just more so swiped more stuff under people's feet. There's a few anything. instances, yeah, where characters feel like echoes of other characters, where Daisy is almost a precursor to Catherine. Yes. Um, whereas you have these other members of the families who are more like Pete. You wouldn't necessarily want Pete in charge of the mill if you're trying to be the shrewd competitive business people. Uh, Pete would probably have too much humanity, honestly. Uh, he may not have the business smarts, but he also would not be as ruthless. Um, more on Catherine, by the way. We learned that she was a Twin Peaks high school graduate. I don't know if that was ever established that she was from that school. It makes sense considering the family's lineage being in this area. Um, but she also graduated with a few uh, extra notes attached. She had a remarkable command of French, Japanese, and the Kama Sutra. One of these is not like the other. <laughs> Which one is it, Professor? I don't think that any of them are really like each other for... Well, French well, and Japanese are languages. They, both of them are languages, yes. but Very different languages. Very different languages and likely very different implementations, especially for how small the overall community yes. is. But it seems like, like very... are also different implementations, too. All of these seem like very specific things, specifically yeah. for And I'm sure all Catherine. three of them helped her in her businesses. Very much so. <laughs> <laughs> I think the, the Kama Sutra element is interesting because we do see Catherine's involvement with Ben, you know, the sort of element that um, he is enticed by Catherine for the little bit of on-screen chemistry you have of those two. Yep. But aside from that, we don't necessarily get the sense that she was the Lana Milford of her day. No. That well, she was the, the sex goddess of Twin Peaks we, prior. We can't necessarily say that, but we can, I suppose, make assumptions. Remarkable command of the Kama Sutra seems to imply things. It might imply a couple things. Um, I don't know. I just thought it was an interesting element because I wasn't going in expecting that in her backstory. Uh, it, it just, I guess, adds an element to her personality, I suppose. <laughs> um. But yeah, no, knowing Catherine, it immediately I think of it being used as a tool in her arsenal. That it's one more way she can have advantage over the men that she's competing against. Mm -hmm. um, you know, not uh, that that's at least where my brain goes to right away. Did you have any differing interpretations? Maybe. Maybe she just wants to have fun. Maybe, Maybe she just wants to have a good time. Girls just want to have fun. See, I sang that off-key on purpose so he wouldn't get cited for copyright concerns. <laughs> that's why I did it. Gotta be careful for those, you know, podcast cops. Oh, you know one girl who just wants to have fun? The wood mistress. Can we hear for the wood mistress? Wood mistress alert. I hope you're proud of yourself. I hope you're really proud of yourself. 
What's the wood mistress, Khalil? Helga Brogger. No, no, what's the wood mistress? That's who's the wood mistress. The wood mistress sits in her chair on a thick pillow and expertly eyes timbers as they enter the mill and discerns in an instant a log's fate. Yeah. Sort of like a sorting hat, but for logs. Yep, a sorting log person. Like, this is an actual being, not a hat. Mix and uh, apparently, it's also a lineage. Mix and match, she sneers at pulp. Trusses, she giggles at blushes at structural pieces. Veneer logs bring forth a bright and sassy, Hi, handsome! She has never missed a day of work and is probably 72 years old. Probably. That's our estimate. Yep, and it, it's it's this unknown family, if you will, mm-hmm. that looks at logs and tells them what they will be. And it's a good question on whether or not, like, how accurate I this feel like, is. I feel like what this is is if you were to have, like, you know, there's a roller coaster tycoon, zoo tycoon, city building, like, sim kind of games. I feel like if there was a log industry tycoon, logging tycoon, this is like a high-end upgrade you can add to your, your, your logging industry where you acquire through great expenses a wood mistress. And how much that would just facilitate production. No more uncertainty about what will be happening to your wood. You would know the difference now. <laughs> she had to have a lung removed, and then she was back on the shift uh, shortly after. So, That's what I mean. It's a, uh, it's a well, worthwhile what I'm investment. Is that we don't have much time without a wood mistress? Like, how do we know? how this goes because it looks like she's just constantly looking it's like yeah that's good for that that's good for that and there's actually like little charts in the book on like how the overall wood is divided if you will for Mm -hmm. each of the logs so i'm just curious very curious on how much it is helping with the precision of it if she must constantly look at something and say Hi, handsome. Hi, handsome. Trusses. Mix and match. Trusses. Hi, handsome. <laughs> I think this is where we automate. We have a robot future in the future, right? We'll have a robot. Hi, trusses. Hi, handsome. <laughs> Hi, trusses. Mix and match. Well, that's the future of industry, man. You got to adapt. You got to you gotta have future log mistresses. Uh, they don't like, unfortunately, things got burned down, so I don't know how much of. Hopefully the, the log mistress wasn't in there. <laughs> it sounds like she's still alive she in the never, timeline. She could be. We she don't, could be. <laughs> she could be. <laughs> um, speaking of logs. Speaking of logs. Speaking of logs. Bernhardt's boner. There's, excuse me? <laughs> there actually is a section in this area called Bernhardt's boner. I have nothing to say on it. It just felt good to Further, like interrupt your segue. One more reason with, to go read this book. One more reason. Figure out what Bernhardt's boner is. So there's a little blurb on one of the pages with a detailed photo of Margaret Lannerman's log, uh, which we find out, I think was mentioned in other source material, but uh, further evidence, this was a gift on her wedding night from her late husband who was a firefighter. Ponderosa Pine Log. Mm-hmm. We'll be pondering Osa, her character, for a while. <laughs> uh, things to ponder include the fact that Margaret Lannerman supposedly was born on an unknown date. We do not know when she was born, according to this book. She was a forestry and wildlife management manager from Evergreen State University. Do you get it? Trees. Trees. I also if you're love- a forestry major from Evergreen State, trees. <laughs> she also teaches fire prevention now. Makes sense. And ballroom dancing. Unexpected. Unexpected? No, I'm sure she's lying on her feet, especially with how much like weight she has to carry with the big old log we inside her, her arm. We see her standing almost the entire time we yeah, see her. and she's standing up with a fantastic posture as well, well that, that makes she? sense then why Wyndham Earl imitated her at the end with that sort of deftly... The, you see the, the, the grace at which he bopped Bobby over the head with that log? <laughs> that weird triangular cut log? <laughs> um, 
Margaret Lanneman very interestingly says that her favorite part of Twin Peaks includes, among other things, Glastonbury Grove, which is the location where those 12 sycamore trees are that is also a portal to the other realm. The, 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 <laughs> the, the red, realm. I was going to say the Black the Lodge, realm? but it's like we don't really don't know if it's the Black Lodge. We know it's the Red Room. <laughs> I, I don't know if it's ever 100% clear at this point it's, you know, what exactly this is. So, we're just going to keep running that over. With I mean, <laughs> supposedly, supposedly Sarah Palmer is in the Black Lodge uh, with Dale Cooper. Apparently. But regardless, um, <laughs> I love how, like, the log lady comes up literally in the flora section of the mm-hmm. book. This self-proclaimed Libra is literally in with the rest of the trees. It makes sense. <laughs> I, I do think it's uh, interesting that her talking about Glastonbury Grove as a favorite part of Twin Peaks because that means at some level she probably senses the spirituality of that area. Or it's just a really nice place. I don't know geographically where her house is located in comparison to that particular area. We know she does live very much secluded outside of the town. Mm-hmm. Um, but it makes me wonder because our associations with the Glastonbury Grove are almost exclusively negative because we <laughs> see this area at the end of the season when it's a portal for Bob and Wyndham Earl to lure Cooper and Annie in yeah. to have um, Annie, you know, how's Annie? We don't know. And then <laughs> Cooper to be obviously not doing so hot afterward with smashing his head in the mirror. Maybe she just likes the passion play and it brings back great memories. It's yeah, a nice maybe. place. It is, it is a curious. I don't think this is implying a dark side to the log lady. I don't think it is. <laughs> um, but it is, it is interesting that this place almost exclusively patterned as negative would be uh, a favorite place of the log lady. Yep, probably. Probably. In the meantime, uh, the poor firefighter got burnt down. Now we have is a ponderous plug. Ponderous plug. Speaking of plugs, what 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 do you think emphasizes Twin Peaks more than anything? What 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 do you think could be a symbol for Twin Peaks kinda, itself? Kind of scared what kind of plugs we're going to talk about here. We plug in <laughs> something here. I'm kind of what I'm trying to go for professor. is that there actually is a city flower. I don't know if that's normal. Yeah, I, think I know there's like state flowers, oh. but I don't know about city flowers. Uh, maybe. <laughs> tell me, tell me, Khalil. Like what what flower do you think emphasizes the beauty of a Twin Peaks? Wheat flower. Hmm? Wheat flower. Like the flower you get in wheat. Wheat. Not weed. Oh. No, oh. wheat. <laughs> no, like. You uh, and I have two different minds, friends. Okay. There's two kinds of people in this world. <laughs> no, I don't recall seeing wheat anywhere, but I have seen plenty of trees. And what's inside of trees? Well, <sighs> Raccoons? <laughs> no, it's the beautiful flower known as the pine cone. Oh, yeah, it's yep. a flower. It is It is a flower, but it's also listed as a seed that plops yeah. down and makes a, the it's overall It's the reproductive trees. part of the plant. It's the flower. It the is seed. the rep- reproductive plant. Just think to yourself, like, the wonderful collection of things you can get. You know, like, pressed flowers yeah. as mementos? What does a pressed pine cone you know, look like? No, my favorite flower is the apple, all right? Like, just leave me alone. <laughs> just an apple bush on just, your wall. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, speaking of raccoons that I mentioned earlier, <laughs> uh, raccoons, you know, they are possibly more evil than anything living in Glastonbury Grove, even dark forces and dark portals to the Red Room, mm-hmm. because, as the book explains, it is a myth that they wash everything before eating it. Yeah, quote, everything- quote, <laughs> quote, filthy garbage eaters in disguising masks. <laughs> Just this hatred for raccoons is expressed very briefly in this book. Yeah, there's actually like pretty nice overall bits of like information, still in a bit of humor if you will, I feel like throughout raccoons this. Have been but to... specifically yeah. raccoons in the fauna section is only given a myth. No, it's just it's just evil too, it's just evil. And I feel like raccoons have been trying to claw their way into Twin Peaks for a while. They got the deleted scene 
off of uh, Fire Walk with me where the Lucy was going to bring up the raccoon story. There's yeah. a deleted was a deleted scene right in yep. the uh, A to Z to A collection also from the original series. So two times Lucy was going to try to bring up raccoons, but and it didn't happen. It and They're now they the got darkness. it in this guidebook. I feel like Lucy might have gotten her way. Finally, <laughs> raccoons were mentioned. It's even a nice raccoon sketch and everything. But no, instead we just keep the raccoons inside the background, sneaking through your overall trash with their deceptive masks. The complete opposite of that is the sacred white moose. The sacred white moose is a blessing, is a good thing. No. Kind of. No, it's not. Okay. Visits those with troubled minds. Okay. So that he, sounds comforting. It's. It sounds like a moose suddenly appeared because, like, you're having a hard day. It sounds like a moose is there to support you, which I don't know how well moose can help with, the, like, the supportive nature of things. It's a fun lore thing. It is a fun sort of, like, mythical uh, legend within the area. The white moose is nice for that reason. Yeah. But it's a moose that passes by you because there were a bunch of moose in the past See, potentially this would have been... that got slaughtered from greed from people. Yeah. And then so the moose is just there to be like, hey man, I'm vibing with this. I'm sorry, man. But doesn't speak. It's just kind of moose in there. I'm trying to remember. Wyndham Earl was dressed with Leo as a, was it a black and white spotted horse? It was like a horse, yeah. It was black and white, right? Like a cow? I think so. Yeah, it was like a cow horse. Yeah, no, there's no horns. It's not moose. Yeah, what I'm saying is they missed an opportunity. Instead of having the sacred white moose, it could have been the sacred white horse. And then you'd have the dual idea of the horse that Wyndham Earl was what in. What are you going to get then, off of horses? This no, is... no, think about Sarah Palmer. The white horse visited her, and she was clearly having a troubled mind. But then it makes no sense of, like, why people killed a bunch of horses. It makes sense for moose because moose tend to have materials Dude, on them. Dude, humans, so we, we learned about the so beavers on. earlier. Humans be killing things, you know? <laughs> I'm just saying just there's for, already like, a sacred white horse. Well, is, now we have too many sacred white animals in one geographic area. <laughs> I'm just worried about that. Do you think the sacred white moose and the sacred white horse uh, end up hanging out together I at like all? to believe so. And, mm. and, and we know the sacred white moose is real because Dominic Renault claims to have seen it, according to rumors. Did good, good job, Rumor Dominic. has it that Dominic Renault claims to have seen it, therefore it is confirmed Very to be valid there. source there. Valid source. Done about as much research as I would do, you know? It's, <laughs> that sounds good to me. Um... Uh, throughout the book, there's these kind of elements of mythology or supernatural or spirituality that the book never goes too far into saying are for sure real, but then doesn't go too far into disproving them either. Some it kind of treats with more of a mysticism than others. Yeah. Uh, and alongside these mythical potential stories and spiritual stories, there's also groups of people, like shadowy secret cults just living in the area. I guess cult is a strong word. Not all of them. Some of them are just going to be like, you know, just little clubs, just secret organizations. Maybe they're fine. Maybe they're totally benevolent, nothing weird at all. But giving the supernatural things that happen to be in Twin Peaks per the show yeah, makes you wonder, doesn't it? Makes no. you wonder. Makes me wonder. Nah. Not really. There's already a bunch of secret organization. It just seems like the place to be. So there's an owl club. Uh, there's a little blurb here where it says, an owl is never without a friend. Whatever an owl's lot in life, wherever they may be, whether living or dead, they cannot be forgotten. For at the mystical hour of 11, the heart of owldom enlarges and throbs with recollection. An owl is forever. And in Twin Peaks, the Owl Lodge on Sparkwood Road is always a haven for brother owls. Five, five, five owls. Yeah, so like you, Owl Owl Club. What do you think about that? It's think, just an owl club. It's, it's it's basically a mystery blurb in which they're saying, "Ooh, owl, ooh. something, something." Do you think there the Owl you, Club is what something. it seems? It's it's a secret organization. I can tell you as much of the Owl Club as I can tell about Dugpas. Okay. 
What do you want? I just... What can I give you? I can speculate something. The Owl Club, they all dress up in little owl outfits, and they also have little owl bow ties, in which in order to do the secret handshake, you have to adjust the owl bow tie at least three times and hoot in someone's face. Is this the content you want, Khalil? This isn't in the book. This is fan fiction. You're There's making this much in the book. <laughs> There's just a few pages on owls. And that might not be Owl Club adjacent. I'm satisfied based on your reaction. <laughs> I got nothing. You got, you just gave me something. It's good. I got only fan clubs at this point that do mythical things. Owls are mentioned more frequently in the book at times. I don't think it's gratuitous. Uh, it could have been worse. I'll take the amount of owls in this book with stride. Uh, we do get a creation story behind the owl. I don't think it mentioned a specific origin for this creation story, did it? Did it say what, like, tribe or what culture? Nope. Just a story. Which just is a blurb. curious. So it, 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 <laughs> it may or may not be based on something. It might not be. It might be based off of some sort of lore inside the city that was passed down from generation to generation. They might have just talked to the Packards and been like, yeah, no, this is how owls began. I don't know. And then fired the guy who uh, who asked him. Um, yeah, so the owl creation story, short version here, is that there's this young man who built a small hut for his mother-in-law, and she was having that hankering for beaver intestines. She's like, hmm, that beaver intestine sounds real good right now. And her daughter and husband would eat those beaver intestines, so she had to get them somehow. So she tricked her daughter into becoming an owl, and then, as you do, slipped into her how? daughter's skin. How? It's what you do. How? If you really have a hankering for those beaver intestines, you find a way. Where there's a will, there's a beaver. And where there's a beaver, you slip into your daughter's skin. And then, and then she goes eat the beaver intestines before going to bed with her son-in-law in the body of her daughter. At which point the wife, as the owl she's been tricked into being, the wife owl lands on top of the lodge. And she's like, hoot, hoot. That's, 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 my, that's your mother-in-law. Hoot, hoot, hoot. That's your mother-in-law. Hoot, hoot, hoot. And then logically, he kills his mother-in-law in the, in the body of his wife. And then the owl, the, the things happen. That's the story. Uh, to continue, like she beckons him and he says, okay, can't you get back into the body of like my wife? Mm -hmm. My dear wife He's like, nope. He's like, okay, well, I'll just owl too. And then that person becomes an owl. And they both fly away together as owls. I, I, I'm curious, in terms of the implications and reason for including this story, it associates owls with, tre with trickery, with treachery, right? The owls are not what they seem. The this owl, owl is, in fact, your wife. The owl is a <laughs> sense of deception, but not directly from the owls themselves. No. And the sort of hooting here is almost a warning to the husband or trying to give advice or inclination of a truth that maybe is dark. Mm -hmm. So there's a sort of owls as secretive, not what they seem, but also um, there is a lot of the trickery is not their fault, and they're trying to warn you of impending danger. They seem like a lost soul sort of like archetype, if yeah. you will. They are beings that either were deceived they or They need to see the path. sacred white moose. <laughs> the sacred white moose will comfort them. Where was the moose in this story, Khalil? The moose can't be everywhere at once. There's one sacred white moose, and it's hanging out with Dominic Renault most of the time. Okay? There's also this ominous two-page spread called Owl Wise by Firelight. And in part, it says... We are certain that ancient taloned bird sees what we do not, knows what we never will. And some night, silent as a gliding feather, its immensity will engulf us at fireside to tell us things we want to know as well as those we don't. In the shadowed forest, 
were pulled by that lurking and alluring ghost, and we are enthralled. Just get a magic eight ball. You know, this does the same thing. No. No. <laughs> this idea, again, the owls are not what they seem. We include the fire here. Uh, the sense of being drawn into the woods to find answers, even if those answers may not be what we want to hear. Mm-hmm. You know, ignorance is bliss. I'm curious, Professor, in context Hi. of Twin Peaks, do you think ignorance is bliss? Like, is it better to, like, not know, considering the darkness of the woods? No, it's really good to know. It's really, it's good, really to know? good to know, but okay. the thing is, no one talks. Mm-hmm. No one talks. And whenever there's a point of communication, it seems that people have a very hard time saying anything at all to one another. It seems like something that should be appropriately notified to people to be pretty wary. We know, of. We know Laura was filled with secrets, but I feel like she was also crying out for help, and everyone she turned to was not exactly helpful. Um, whether it's Jacoby and his abuses, Ben and his abuses the numerous side arrangements and side engagements that she had throughout her life, James and Bobby not necessarily fully there to help her. Oh, no, I'm not saying that communication is not a problem, but I don't think that the solution is let's go all in on let's keep things secret. Well, that's what, I, that's what I'm saying is the theme of secretivity has been such a thing in Twin Peaks. Yes. And Laura being such a hub of those secrets. Who do you think are the most truthful characters in Twin Peaks? The ones who are the least... The most open-eyed, the ones who are most open-eyed at looking for the truth and and maybe know the truth. Okay, now knowing the truth. I is think the Major Briggs. Is I don't one. like. That's the thing, though. Like knowing the truth doesn't I don't look think... away from. The, let's say. Let's phrase it that way. Doesn't look away from the truth. I think Major Briggs. Maybe he still has enough that he's still keeping under his belt, but that might just be because, well, mm-hmm. his overall position in the government. Donna almost tried to be at the end with her father situation. Um, I don't think that there's a deceptive bone in Andy's body. No, no, I would say Andy's a good option. Ben, if you want to charitably assume the best out of his transformation, mm-hmm. could be this. Um, it's just hard to tell. I once would have seen, said Pete, but Pete has made some interesting moves alongside yes. with Catherine. He has that a makes, little bit more. Makes things suspicious. I think Cooper's a hard case and Annie's a hard case too. They they definitely seem interested in knowing the truth of what's going on about things. Yeah. Yeah. But there's not many of them. I feel like the majority of them kind of wallow in this area, whether intentionally or not, of not communicating those things, of keeping things secret, of keeping things unknown. One thing that is not a secret, though, is Pete Martell's guide to fishing. There's a lot to fishing. There's a lot to fishing. There's a lot to fishing. Like inside the fauna section, Mm -hmm. it's like one, two, three, four, five, six pages. Six pages out of like a 110-page book. This is at the very least about, I'd say that's close to, I'm doing math wrong, but about 7% Sure, let's go with that. This is 7% fish book. Look, I will say it's probably one of the biggest sections in the whole book. It is. In terms of things that are about the same topic continuously, this is like more important than the lineage of the Martell and Packard families. Yep, Pete (laughs) Land in that big one as it's overall set as the section itself. I also am, I thoroughly enjoy... For information on how to order posts to above, see page 112, and it's a poster of all these fish, these, mm-hmm. like, brilliant-looking, very cool fish, okay? There's no 112 in the book. It goes up to 111, and then the very next page, it's not an advertisement for fish, 
<laughs> a fish posters, piss posters. It's an advertisement for the autobiography. Autobiography? There we go. Of FBI special agents Dale Cooper, My Life, My Tapes, or The Secret Diary of Laura Palmer. Which, as far as I know, having both those books, unless they took the fishing posters out of those books, I don't believe that there is a fishing poster out there for this. I think I've been deceived, There's Khalil. There's a fishing poster in my Dale Cooper book. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, there's also a giant section of Pete's Tackle Box where you learn what keep what keep Pete's in his tackle where box. We talk podcast good. Podcast Pod- good, talk good. <laughs> yes. Um, Pete's Tackle Box. A lot of it's junk. Um, once you get past the useful stuff, including Joe's fun-filled fart fact book. Yes. And uh, there's also Yukio Mishima's uh, paperback. In Japanese. So I assume he's learning some Japanese from Josie. Maybe. I feel no. like maybe. Maybe. Is the case? Ooh. I feel like he, you know, Pete's a man of poetry. Pete is a man of letters and a, pan, a man of fiction. I, I feel like he may find learning of the Japanese language on a basic level for some 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 good writing. Maybe the motivation. I him. just assumed that since Catherine knew Japanese, that maybe Pete was trying to take it up since everything's failing around Catherine. Do you also so. assume that Pete knows the, the Kama Sutra? I mean, I think that he doesn't have it with him because he hasn't memorized. Yeah, it's true. He doesn't, so, he doesn't need that as a reference guy yeah, in his no. tackle box. But no, there's, there's simple things like spools and there's like a few things like dry flies that make sense. But it, like there's also shot glasses, you know, for like in case you need to take shots in the middle of the boat. Uh, there's multiple times where shirt buttons are brought up. But there's weirdly enough like four spaces that are left empty. Like blank. I assume Before just it goes back spots. to several thumbtacks. I assume it's just some empty spots in the tackle but, box. Empty spots, just like nothing yeah. there. Yeah, in the empty, in little holes. Yeah, just little holes, just like. Well, because when you have a tackle box, there's little compartments, right? So some of them are going to be empty. Ah, uh, very well, very That's well. That's what I'm thinking. Is okay. That, uh, yeah, it looks like a big tackle box though, because he's putting a lot of things in there. Like the the I'm, I don't know the tackle boxes I've seen are always small, so I'm just trying to imagine like keeping all these books. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't. I don't understand fishing. <laughs> it's all there's fishing's all... too complicated for me. But yeah, no, this is just a list of under proper equipment because he's talking about his proper equipment. So be sure to bring up your uh, Yukio Mishima paperback with you. But the biggest uh, interesting thing amongst all these tips, there's A through H through tips, right? Mm -hmm. But after all those tips, we can actually get lists of tackle. Okay, we've got things like the Wesley Olive. We got the Doc Sprightly. We've got ourselves the Standard Dry, the Black Palmer. And then we've got the Annie. Yeah, the, the Annie has a tackle, and specifically, I gotta say, the tackle of Annie uh, is not faced the same direction as everyone else. It's faced ninety degrees in the other direction, with hook facing up rather than right. You know that there's a, there's a tackle called Annie. I was just checking, you know, because I do research on this podcast, <laughs> and I was checking to see if there's actually a, a type of tackle called the Annie. And I I'm just googling Annie tackle fishing into Google Images, and uh-huh. it's just bringing up, like, Annie's bait and tackle in Florida, <laughs> and, like, different, like, Annie margarita leather rod in like, real combination like, case. Like, some of these seem like maybe just, like, names in which, like, you would give in general, like, the rusty skeleton and so on, but no, this specifically says Annie. So, no, that one seems deliberate. It doesn't seem like it's referencing, like, a famous type of tackle as far as I could just quickly Google, so this does seem like a deliberate thing to make that one face the raw other way specifically, around. Specifically, no, Pete just liked the name Annie and said, this one's name is Annie. Yeah. I really like this tackle. Yeah, Nothing like you said, you got to be careful it about Pete Martell. bringing in all the fish. Got to keep an eye on Pete Martell. He's up to some <laughs> shady shenanigans. 
Speaking of shady shenanigans, more so shenanigans and potential shade, depending on what time of day it is, because weather, it's a wondrous thing. It's a wondrous sort of like occurrence in the sky that we have to celebrate somehow. So who better to bring to this celebration than Big Ed Hurley? I'm so sorry. So this this book, this book has the weirdest fascination with Big Ed. Like, Big Ed is brought up into the book. Big Ed's guest farm is brought up into the book. But it's Big, in ge- Big Egg. Big Egg. <laughs> but it's in the geology and weather section. Yeah. And you know why? Yeah. Because Big Ed's guest farm is on the continental edge. So there could have been a beach there. So they're like, yep, this is where the Big Ed's guest farm is. Dependent on, like, millions of years ago, there could have been a beach right here. I was like... This is a freaking gas place. Yeah. Why are we doing this? Yeah, it seems like there's mountains over there. Can we talk about that? No, no. we're not talking about Big Ed's gas farm being on the continental edge 100 million years like ago. They were like trying to, you know, have a, a, a quote of how much they talk about each character and they realized <laughs> they didn't have enough Big Ed content. <laughs> They're like, um, let's make him relevant. No, literally, Big Ed's apparently so big, if you will, that they also decide to compare, like, not only, like, the geological shifts and just, like, what the history of the realm and what made Twin Peaks and how these hills have been made, and also just bring up Big Ed there. But, no, also, when it comes to the weather, Mm -hmm. like, how there was the blizzard of 1889, guess what? They bring in Big Ed as well. They bring in Big Ed because he's about 74.5 inches, and guess what? At about 984 inches, we have the snow. We also have snow that's 1,224.5 inches. It's a big bar on the side, and there's little Ed right here. <laughs> I didn't even see that. It's like 74.5 inches. He's so right tiny. Well, he's, he's, and take he's, he's one, the biggest two, man. three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen 10, 11, 12, 13, 14-ish Eds to make up the size of one of the blizzards. I think I hear Big Ed trying to get a hold of you over there on the phone behind you. Screw that. I hear, hear the phone going off a little crazy back there. The weather's just fine. I don't need Big Ed right now. I, I do. I measure my storms in Big Ed's. <laughs> I don't know why you don't. Not good enough for you. You're you and your metric system. <laughs> we use big eds in America. But no, the, it was the greatest snowfall that was compared to North America. That was the 1224. And then the biggest one in Twin Peaks uh, was not 184. So it, it, it's this weird, like, factoid on this fictional town, but needing big ed in all I of this. I get it. He's the, tallest, he's the tallest person probably in Twin Peaks to reference <laughs> outside of mystical giants. So, I mean, it makes sense. <laughs> I, I I mean it was kind of it's kind of wild though that blizzard of eighteen eighty nine it goes into how it like appeared out of kind of nowhere and ferociously and unexpectedly killed more than forty three thi- forty three citizens in the first ten minutes alone. That's a lot of people in ten minutes. That's a lot of people in ten minutes, and it's very weird that we include... mentioned how many big eds of snow falling on top of you. Eleven, uh, like eleven big eds of snow. You said not use the human body to compare sizes. Well, of it's snow. not uh, a human body. It's big eds human body specifically. <laughs> While we have corpses everywhere in this section. They're not as big as, as Big Ed. <laughs> Makes sense. I understand. <laughs> I understand. How many Big Eds do you think it would take to reach the summit of Whitetail Falls? I mean, Big Ed is like 74.5 inches. How big is like the falls? Like very, very big? I'll I'll say probably, let's see. You're, you're good at I'll, math. You've done math earlier? I'll go 100 Eds. 100 Eds? 100 Eds. All right, listener. If you want to do the math and you have a more appropriate number or you want to confirm the professor's estimations, you can contact us at snakeeyedreams at gmail.com or you can reach out to us via Twitter 
at Snake Eye Dreams one, the numeral one, as in one big Ed <laughs> away, and you've reached our inbox. <laughs> <laughs> so the falls. The falls. The falls, yes. 350,000 visitors travel to Twin Peaks every year to enjoy the falls. Considering the town's size and kind of uh, proclivity for the mysteries, uh, that's a fair amount of visitors. It's kind of a touristy kind of section, kind isn't of it? Kind of a touristy part, but that's probably because the story's behind the touristy part. Yes. Side note, by the way, for the falls, it says in quotation, Meet your love! So magical are the powers of Whitetail Falls that anyone who has ever fallen in love within the sound of their plunging water remains in love forever. Now, quick question, like, falling in love within the sound of the plunging water. Like, is it just, like, it can be as faint as possible, or does it have to be the sound It doesn't elaborate. Within the overall realm of it. Like, do I have to be underneath the 248 million gallons of water? See, I interpret it as, like, if you're within the the range of the sound is what I'm thinking, which gives quite a bit of 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 an area, which, because that's located where the Great Northern is. If you're standing outside the steps of the Great Northern, you can hear the rushing falls, I would assume, right? So anyone who's fallen in love at the Great Northern may be trapped forever in this relationship. <laughs> like, it's meant to be, I think, a positive thing. You know, it's it's true love will last forever. But I'm also thinking, like, oh, no. Is that what happened with Nadine? Well, I, we know it's not what happened with Nadine and her story. But my point is, that's what could happen is someone could be trapped in this marriage forever. Also, I did the math while we were doing this. Sorry, okay. listener, I beat you to the punch onto this. But uh, the Whitetail Falls has about 600 uh, feet sort of like fall. Okay. I, I plugged in the numbers, and that take 99.5 Eds. You were very close. I was very close. Oh, you're, you're good. <laughs> See, the Ed is a valid way to measure height. <laughs> you just proved how good of a measurement it is. Like I you, think I proved. Okay, wait. How, how many feet was it what you said? Uh, it's over, It's about uh, 600 feet okay. that goes down every hour. But it's not exactly 600, right? It is. Uh, it's about. It gallons plummet six hundred feet down uh, okay. the fall. So it says six hundred. The book thinks it's exactly. I'm just 600. saying that saying it's one hundred big eds is a pretty like standard measurement tool. <laughs> I think it's smooth. It's clear. It's concise. I think this is why I hate the system that I have in the states and want to go to like you know meters. I think meters makes you more sense than feet. You and your metric feet. system. The only <laughs> meter that matters is big ed. <laughs> Either way, it still just sounds like a trap for these falls. It sounds, it sounds like, like a trap for 100 Ed standing gonna, on each other's gonna, shoulders. You're going to be stuck in love forever. <laughs> and it, it does make me wonder because in the blurb about Josie Packard, Josie said that the best part in Twin Peaks was the sound of the water, whitetail roaring when I feel like a rushing torrent falling. Uh, one, aw, you need, a, you need to get a white moose on your side, Josie. <laughs> your mind sounds kind of troubled right now. And then also, alongside the moose comment here, there's that sense of that's our favorite place to go. Is that where, is that, is that where, is that where, uh, is that where uh, Truman fell in love with her? Was at the rushing? And now he is just latched forever onto her. That is, might be, there might be a case for that. That might be the case for that. I don't know. It makes me worry. <laughs> it makes me feel sad, mostly because uh, he's alive and she's a doorknob. And, and one of the very few comments we get from Harry Truman in his little blurb is that he admits to feeling lonely now and then, which, okay, for the timeline, would insist again that this is after season two with the doorknob of Josie happening here. But it's because he feels lonely because he's been cursed by the waterfall. It all adds up. It all adds up. <laughs> Speaking of cursed locations, Owl Cave. Owl Clay. Clave. 
<laughs> Owl Enclave. We, we have the correct additional letters in our words. Yes, they're, they're in there somewhere. <laughs> He's got to dig for them. It's paleontology. Uh, uh, let's dig deeper into this cave, shall we? What about Owl Cave? It's, it's interesting. There's a lot of myths and legends associated, as you would expect. But uh, Yeah, and it even shows like the full-on picture mm -hmm. that's seen at the final episodes of the series, yes. if you will. Yes, Of, you know, the giants, the Saturn, the creepy-looking Eldritch skull that might mean something else. I don't know. It's got the full map that uh, Wyndham Earl draws out. Yes. And the book's kind of approach is that it really isn't sure, again, what to believe. So they mention how it's unclear if local indigenous people carved the cave out of the landscape or if it was just discovered like that. So we're not even sure of, like, the origins of the cave itself. We mm. do know that the Flathead tribe would hold meetings there. They would use this also to store pelts and to elude enemies. They would go into the cave and hide in there. They also said the cave was visited by the beyond and that messages had been left for them there. Then the book goes on, quote, but curiously, for a cave bearing such a lofty legend, not much has been found of the time. No artifacts, drawings, or the like. Which I find curious because in the cave, when we see it, there's like clearly things going on in there, right? Like, am I missing something? Um, the thing is, is that there's we all those carvings and there's the protrusion that opens up and then the thing goes upside down and... Honestly, when it comes to, like, Owl Cave, it's, like, the only so much we get a chance to explore, especially with the little protrusions, the little push button. Yeah. Not only that, but the map that is featured inside the show shows Owl Cave on fire. Like, mm -hmm. that's on the map. It's just the big old fire blurb with Owl Cave. So, I, I, I'm sure that there's plenty in Owl Cave that's still yet to be discovered. It's just... The mystery place. I'm confused, though, and and maybe I'm asking you as a first-time viewer, maybe Hi. your memory's clearer than mine here, Hi. and you can help me. Hi. When they went to Owl Cave, what ended up happening as a result of going there? Like, they spelunked into it. They, they found the Owl Cave symbol. The thing got turned upside down and pushed in. What happened? What did that do? Um, did they learn something? Did they get something? Did something open? Why were they? What what happened? I remember an owl flying at one point in the cave. Yeah. But why did they go there? Oh, apparently there were just some clues that sort of led there. Right. They were in a little was chase that a with dead Wyndham end Earl. or was that? No, Wyndham Earl found the rest of the puzzle. Like they just did what? most of the work for Wyndham Earl and he did the little pushy thing. What did he find there? He found stuff. Mysteries. Are we led to believe that what he found was the location of Glastonbury Grove? Like Glastonbury Grove? Is that what this was? I feel like I'm asking like a dumb question because I feel like it should be obvious, but I remember vividly them going to the cave. I remember vividly Wyndham Earl coming back and having getting laughter, but I remember the episode ends with like Wyndham Earl laughing about finding something, but I don't think we ever find what he found. I and then shortly after he shows up with black teeth. <laughs> he just learned something, right? He learned something. It's we don't know just, what it is. I don't know what it is or I don't <sighs> recall what it was. Okay. Something's in that cave. Uh, there's probably a lot there's of things that came. in that cave. It wasn't a dead end. Maybe so, maybe not. Maybe they just found a six-pack there. Apparently, that's what you can find nowadays over there. I'm curious. What? Six-packs. People have been using it for beer lately, oh, apparently. Oh, okay. I was going to say, I was curious what, uh, in 1933, what the Philan, Philan, P. Lan gang what they found in the cave. Because there's a story the book reiterates about this gang of robbers who had robbed a bank in Twin Peaks escaped into the cave to hide away from law enforcement, but then eventually surrendered when the head of the gang became frightened by the dark. 
So, and he built a fire to like try to ward off the dark. So he heard or saw something potentially in there. Yeah, but that could just be the woods itself. It's just like the owl cave is just a very specific spot that is a good place to hide out, but at the same time, probably is at the center of a lot of this shenanigans. And do I read that as a positive thing? Like whatever was in the cave was helping local law enforcement arrest this criminal? Or is it like something in there is horrifying and even a hardened criminal was afraid of it? I'll, I'll go for the latter personally. I think that there's probably just some rather Dugpa adjacent things in there. Dugpa adjacent. Yeah. Speaking of those uh, super spooky secret clubs that you are not that worried about from earlier. Yeah, the circular lodge you're going to The circulars. Uh, so President Truman visited the cave. The President Truman that Harry S. Truman would later get his namesake from, potentially. President Truman visited the cave in 1948 while on a camping, not camping. It says campaign trail in my notes. I read it as camping. Campaign trail. And he became an honorary member of the Flathead tribe around that point. Soon after, a secret society called the Circulars took over the cave. And they refused to answer questions for the book, but offered an address and a phone number saying, we will continue to do good deeds in our own characteristically mysterious ways. We're a very polite way of saying, stop asking us questions. Just <laughs> trust us. <laughs> so there's this sort of weird element where U.S. President Truman got involved with this cave. The Flathead tribe had previously been using this cave and the circulars also took control of this cave around that same time. Yep. What do you hypothesize was going on here? What I hypothesize going on, just so more mystical, just sort of like under the cover shenanigans inside the little bits of the darkness. That do you trust the circulars and President Truman? Uh, no. No? No. 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 No, never trust the secret organizations in fiction. I There's never like... been a, like, even with the Bookhouse Boys, they're pretty suspicious. Yeah. Okay. So, no, I don't trust any secret organizations inside this place. No. Harry Truman also shows <laughs> up when he speaks at a location called The Grange, which formerly had been the grandest building in all of Twin Peaks before being burned down in an arsonry case. Who would have thought arsonery, right? Fire? Who would have thought? with me? Um, uh, yeah, James Packard had also given speeches there warning against rioting workers. Uh, he equated unionists and anarchists, it sounds like, from it. Which, you know, I trust James Packard over the unionists, don't you? <laughs> those dang workers fighting for rights and oh, wanting to have barbecues. Those darn people with lives. No, that's, again... Paints Sim in a better light in the book, but I don't know. Again, this is where I think the, the book is kind of constantly complimenting people like James Packard, saying they're like the foundational members of the community, but it also complimented Ben Horn and talked about how Ben Horn seeks business interests over in Canada, and that's a, a good thing with his things that he vaguely no, no, does. No, no, no. Remember, it states that this is still, it's still positive in the book. I'm not saying it's positive in general, yeah. but it's positive in the book. Like, James Packard gives off this Famous speech of yep. 1908, ending with these spellbinding words. You tell me, Khalil, if this sounds spellbinding. Mankind shall not wallow and drown in the pockets of anarchy. Oh, Tannenbaum, oh, Tannenbaum, fear this rising horde, for they will ravish you and pay only in wooden nickels. I am afraid of workers' rights already. <laughs> I am thinking we gotta just trust, we gotta trust James Packard to save us from that. Save us from the wooden nickels, James Packard. Oh, man. It's probably who did the arsonry, right? That's, what? Again, that's that's the humor under this, right? Is for all of James Packard decrying these these anarchists. Um, 
who's most likely the ones doing the arsonry? <laughs> the workers or the rich people here? Hmm. Speaking of fire, passion. <laughs> 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 Wasn't that what that award was for that you kept complaining about? Was like the most passionate, like a hundred years, a hundred passions for Wild like at me. Heart. Wild at Heart, yeah. That pro- that sounds like me. Uh, this this clearly would have been the winner. Is mm. the Twin Peaks passion play? This is definitely one of my favorite sections and one of the most like huh kind of sections for me. There's this alarming. Uh, I keep saying alarming, but a lot of these blurbs are alarming. There's this alarming blurb on one of the sides of the page where it has this disturbing image of a bearded woodsman looking guy with his eyes closed. It's too much beard for Bob, unless Bob used to grow his beard out longer, but it's dang spooky. And then right below that is an arm patch of the Bookhouse Boys who seem to sponsor the Passion Play, but it remains unconfirmed. It remains unconfirmed. The woodsman, the weird woodsman guy is not really addressed. He's just there and it's creepy looking. (laughs) Here's it's just no pupils or anything like yeah. that. Just like a l- hanging head, potentially bearded, potentially hair flipped upwards. It's as a creepy pasta It sets image. the tone for the passion play, that's for sure. Here's how this section starts off. Quote, 12 Douglas firs describe a circle. They appear strong enough to support the sky and their collective age stretches back almost to the Pleistocene. You want the giants to speak, tell you of the amazing history running along the grain in which the never-ending quest is given substance. You feel close to the beginning. It is Glastonbury Grove you're standing in, a part of Ghostwood National Forest and backdrop for Twin Peaks' pent annual passion play. So every five years or so, in a random location, on a random day, that just happens to be in April, but some random day in April somewhere, this will just start. I mean, obviously, it's located over with the Douglas Firs, but how this all gets organized and planned seems to be incredibly just up to the moment. Now, mind you, it's not like any place, uh, as you say. It seems that it's very focused amongst this area in the Glastonbury Grove. And, like, no one even knows when this started. It just kind of has been a thing. Quote, From the shadows, half a dozen Cossack figures emerge bearing a sword, chrysanthemum, crucifix, and chalice. There appears the mysterious guardian at the gate. To this day, no one knows where the Guardian comes from or why it appears. Reminds me a lot of the hooded figure that showed up that one time on the, was it, I think it was when Major Briggs and Cooper were hanging out, wasn't it? Um, maybe. It was, I was a hooded th- figure in, in the woods. That's what it reminds me of is that sort of vague imagery. I was thinking more so of the person that was cut from like the last episode, if yes. you will, that would have mysteriously appeared but did not. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, like, a lot of these details deal with Glastonbury Grove, but the thing that throws me off most is probably the Great Firs, because the Circle of Sycamore Trees seems to be the more notable tree type in a circle around a spot in Whereas the this is Douglas Firs this instead. This is Douglas Firs. Now, is there, like, a secondary circle? There's just the 12 of every circle? tree There's located in this general area. It is, it is weird. I'm, I'm, not sure if, um, I'm not sure if this is an error. I don't know if it's an error. It feels too specific. It's, I don't know. It's a very specific thing, and the thing that throws me off most of all with this is, like, the map from earlier. Was it something of a late edit? Was it something that was not a late edit, but more so there's an intention behind the mystery? 
like the different type of yeah. tree in this. It's 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 got my head. It'd be, it'd be it's one, got the gears going. It'd be it'd be a possible mistake, but then also we have literally a song about the sycamore trees. So it's like I don't know. It's <laughs> it's kind of unclear. It's the same day situation. You know, it's like that time that uh he needed a monkey. In this case, it was uh the same day. I need a singer to sing a sycamore tree song. Please go get them right now. I, I do I do think the imagery of the the figures is interesting. Um. The, the crucifix also being an element is curious because this is where we enter some Christianity into it, um, potentially, uh, usually seen as a Christian symbol at this point. So there's there's an element of that bleeding in, but the rest of it does feel very mystical and in a, in a, in a less definably Christian way. Um, we've, we've talked earlier about like some pagan elements being incorporated either through indigenous cultures or through the Norse mythology of like the Thor element being brought in. Mm-hmm. Um so that, that, that's curious in the combination of things. The sword implying some sort of cutting or violence, potentially. Uh, I think of, like, Jesus bearing the sword as well can, put, can come into it. Chrysanthemum, I don't know if that flower is ever brought up in the Bible or even would be regional around the area. So that feels a bit more distinctly in this region of the world, not Bible-oriented. And then the chalice, like, holy grail is what I think of first, but the cups. There's, there's a sense of division or combat. There's a sense of sacrifice there's a sense of maybe nature or beauty. I don't know if the chrysanthemum maybe holds more. A uh, quick Googling leads me to this website called uh, FTD by Design, and they mention different meanings of the chrysanthemum flower. The, the one that most seems relevant potentially is Victorian England. They would use chrysanthemums to show friendship and well-wishing. And considering this feels very like medievally, I feel like that's probably the most close origin. They do have other interpretations here for Buddhists uh, in China, Australia, Belgium, Austria, but I don't think there's enough cultural roots there to be obvious for those places. That's all I'm really seeing as far as the flower significance there. So I'm not sure if chrysanthemum has more of an implication than I realize, but I'm just thinking that sort of friendship, nature, it's probably the most peaceful of these symbols, I guess. But the cup also thinks of an offering. There's a lot of offering uh, packed type of vibes here. Yeah. It feels like they're trying to make peace with something. <laughs> uh, or offer darkness. something a sacrifice. Perhaps it's fighting against the darkness. The Bookhouse Boys do have a, a vested interest in that activity. Mm-hmm. The ceremony lasts the entire night until the dawn sun obliterates the darkness and good vanishes evil. Skeptics, the book says, skeptics may wonder what happens if the day dawns cloudy, but says that has never actually happened. I'm curious then, given the April activity and when we see things happen with Cooper and the Black Lodge that would, like you said, overlap with the deleted element that there could have been that person that sounds kind of like this shadowy hooded figure was cut from the original idea of the episode. But it makes me wonder if this would have overlapped with the passion play then. Was that morning cloudy? Because I kind of remember it being grayish. Uh Uh-huh. I don't know if I would say it's cloudy. I don't get a clear shot of the sun or the sky, <laughs> but I wonder if that might've been the first cloudy day. But then if that is the case, this book would presumably happen afterward. So would mention it's never <laughs> happened except this most recent time, but it doesn't say that. But that's my immediate wonder is, was this one the time where it was cloudy? But I guess not. That's my reading of the text. A lot is open to interpretation here. Professor, help me. A lot of things are in for interpretation, but at the same time, the passion play seems to be at least something in which you can visit actively and see this event. But only once every five years. Once and every five years. And you cannot plan it because you don't know what day it's going to be. Yep. And, like, I don't know how soon of a notice you have when it happens. Like, Does like the book, an, do hour, the book an hour ahead of time. Flyers? 
I mean, so Pete Martell said this is his favorite thing about Twin Peaks, which again, more alarming things about Pete to be considering here. Ooh. Pete and the Log Lady both like this a lot, I guess. I, I, I'm not surprised that the Log Lady doesn't even need an invite. She probably just shows up. She probably senses it. Knowing her, she just knows when it's time. Yeah. But yeah. Pete, maybe Pete's in charge of the flyers. Pete was in charge of the Annie. That's why he's got that tackle ready. Makes you really wonder things. Makes you really wonder. In terms of other local festivities, there is the Packer Let's Timber go! Games. Packer Timber Games. Yes, today we got the Packer Timber Games. In which Timber. You, if you got the timber, we've got the Packers. Let's go ahead and see about the biggest event, apparently, in Twin Peaks. Look, more important than worker safety or proper wages or any sort of concerns for the workers is the ideal of sportsmanship. And even more importantly, manliness. Oh, and womanliness. No, no, actually manliness. The Packard Timber Games were established in 1910, it says in the book, to promote the ideals of sportsmanship and manliness among his employees. And women can also enter it as women long can as they enter, But that still manliness is the virtue. Ah. That is what the book tells me. I am just repeating <laughs> it here. And it combined events from the ancient Highland Games of Scotland and competitions created by the Packer Mill loggers over decades since the mill's founding. There's a whole bunch of events. Most of them involve hurling giant pieces of wood. Oh, and stones. And stones. There's a point where you throw a stone. You can't wind up, but you can throw a stone with a sad plop. But beyond that, yeah, it's a bunch of wood and it's a little bit of stone. There is an axe throwing competition that Deputy Hawk consistently wins in, which further elaborates on that one scene where Hawk threw that axe down the stairs to kill that guy <laughs> at One-Eyed Jacks, and it totally should have been Hank to do that. I still insist Hank should have been the one to show up and rescue Sheriff Truman and Cooper and Big Ed there. <laughs> but alas, it does not happen that way. Oh, also, all participants must wear kilts, whether male or female, but it does not matter if they are plaid or solid. So Yeah, that's optional. However you want to fashion this out, as long as it is a kilt. I don't know the exact specifications of what is a kilt versus what is a short skirt and what is a dress, but as long as it meets the requirements for kilt. And would you, how, how, how well do you think you would perform inside of this, Khalil? Negative. Negative? <laughs> I'd go in the negatives. All my numbers would be below zero. <laughs> How's that possible? Yeah. The rock, when I throw it, would land behind me. The tree, when you I... You can't wind up. How do you do that? I am a talented... You just have to, like... It's a neutral position to forward, so yeah, that means you have to boomerang I it. I throw it with such a weak throw that the gust of wind blows it backwards. <laughs> when I'm heaving the logs, I they fall on top of me and crush me. Like, I just lose points through, like, disqualifications and other problems as they occur. Okay, what about the high climb? All you have to do is wear some cock boots and a life belt, and you just what have kind to of scale uh, a cock boots. Okay, what are those? It's they got little cocks in them, like uh, you know, like at the bottoms of them, they have little spikes. You mean like cleats? Kind of like cleats, but sharper. Okay, yeah, and all you have to do. They give you a life belt. They give you a forty foot log to climb. Yeah. All you have to do is climb. When I was in elementary school. Um, and we had the pole or the rope to climb. Yeah. I couldn't do it. <laughs> I couldn't get off the ground hardly. Um, my upper body strength is abysmal. <laughs> How would I you don't get think a negative realize, point, though? I will you, somehow... I'm pretty sure you can I will go it. into the earth. <laughs> I will start climbing the tree, and the tree will absorb me into the ground. <laughs> and the most unfortunate thing about all is that I really wanted the prize. Because the prize... More than even the ideals of sportsmanship and manliness, which who cares about those things? The real prize is that you get to take home the wooden thing. What's the wooden thing? That's what it's called. What is the wooden the thing? The wooden thing. Tell me about it. 
the book says, quote, the potential for humiliation is intense, so there's always a pretty big crowd of laughers and jeerers to belittle the wimps and losers. But what's the one thing? It's just the one thing. Is there a picture? Nope. Is there, like, a description? I don't believe so, a nope. size? Not when I looked. You know, size doesn't matter, okay? <laughs> it doesn't matter I how... I need to know where I can store the one thing. It does not matter how big your wooden thing is, okay? It's more if you've earned your wooden thing. Now tell me more about Bernhardt's boner. Uh, you alluded to it earlier in the pod. I don't know much about it myself. I thought that was our incentive for the reader to listen to read the book. Forgive me. Let's uh, let's let, let's move on. Let's let's move we, on we, from Bernhard's boner. We're not going to talk about we're it. We're not going to talk about Bernhard's boner. Why'd you bring it up? Because it's just that it just feels like that time. It just feels like that time. Boner time? It just feels like that boner time. The boner time of the year. Tell me more, Khalil. The most boner time <laughs> of the year. Thank you. Now, two weeks into February, chess tournament at the Great Northern Hotel. Yes, so it seems that there are special events and so on that's specific to overall Twin Peaks that's different from anywhere else. And like probably, any other maybe. activity, it's another wealthy capitalist inventor man who is the one to come up with the idea. In this case, it was Andrew Packard, good old Andrew Packard in 1953, and is currently. This tournament is presided by the soon-to-be Grandmaster Pete Martell. Yeah. The indication of soon-to-be Grandmaster, unless you award Grandmaster posthumously, that would insinuate that Pete Martell is alive at the release of this book. Right, Professor? Soon-to-be. I, I don't know if you can qualify for uh, Grandmaster uh, if you are dead or not. Like, Well, maybe they just, it's like, it's like <laughs> sainthood. They look back upon your works and they determine retroactively. I don't know how things work. <laughs> also, apparently Vladimir Nobokov or Nabokov, Nabokov, however you want to say the name, I've heard different pronunciations. Apparently Nabokov once competed, which is interesting because the one book that people know by Nabokov, the one that he's most famous for, is Lolita. The book that involves, to use words that are maybe the most friendly to our podcast uploading stations, um, a man who becomes smitten with a child. I love the fact that Vladimir Nobokov is the one listed. Like, former challengers include this famous person and then among others. Like, just like, and don't get me wrong, there. Nabokov may be a very well known chess player. For all I know, I just think beyond that, it's interesting that given the context of Twin Peaks, mm -hmm. given things that were going on with Laura. Right. Yeah. I think that there's an element to that that reads a bit interestingly. Earlier in the book, Mark Twain is also mentioned, another author, although that one is more of just the, the curiosity of him being drawn into the woods by the owls and everything like that. <laughs> I just love the overall tone of at least as long as famous people touch this place. Uh, it's something that you should regard and check out, which it isn't uncommon enough, mm -hmm. I would say, whenever just trying to advertise something. But they go to the point that a Natalie Karpov once sent his regrets but the frame letter had disappeared from its display at the Icelandic room. Not only mm -hmm. did this person's like letter come in to show regrets, just being like, yeah, no, sorry, I can't make it. Yep. It was framed yes. in the Icelandic room. And person. then someone took it. Yeah. It disappeared. I like to believe Pete did it. <laughs> it's going to be worth something someday. <laughs> took, took the letter away. Don't know, man. What picture are we painting of Pete now? Is now apparently he's a big crime lord sealing <laughs> off framed letters of famous people because he thinks that's going to be very nice for himself. He was the while first, also using the anti tackle. He was the uh, the very first in his lineage to find a way to not be misfortunate himself, but to bring misfortune onto others. <laughs> truly, truly, the greatest of all Martels. Brilliant. Yes. But no, there's all sorts of different events that you can enjoy. If you don't like chess, I mean, there is 
Miss Twin Peaks. Miss Twin Peaks. The thing we've seen, so we don't have to describe it too much, but there is a, a, I don't know, kind of ominous wording that virtually every girl between 16 and 18 tries out to win Miss Twin Peaks. And around when is this, by the way? It's in April. It's in April. Because, so. again, coinciding with the passion play and the ending of season two. An ending of season two, which is very interesting because it was hard to pinpoint that day because, remember, uh, it had to be somewhere between the first six months of the year <laughs> from how um, they were measuring the days. So, at the very least, we know generally it's probably in April. No, it literally is in April. It, yes. it says so. No, no, no. The ending. But, yes, it is in yeah. April. No, the ending is in April, and that's also, again, when the Passion Play takes place. So yep. there's questions you can have there. Questions. Um, but yeah, the idea that every girl or virtually every girl between 16 and 18 tries that, it's kind of just an assumption. So when Audrey at first doesn't want to do it, that actually would be rather unusual if she didn't, um, especially coming from a more out, out like... Um, family known in the community, like kind of that has a, a bit of a claim and prestige. So yes, they use it as a platform to talk about the pine weasel and the environment and stuff, but it also just would have been weird if one of the town's big families, their daughter, who's, you know, in that age range, didn't do it. That'd be kind of weird. Also considering that she is older than 16, I believe at this time, right? So 16, she, 18, so she's probably... So she probably skipped it last year, it sounds like. Right? Potentially. Again, it seems that virtually every girl. So right. it doesn't virtually. mean that every and single one. And to be one. fair, Audrey's not like most girls. <laughs> I love the fact that we have emphasis on people that are still entering that are beyond the age, but still um, yeah. are really engaging with it, such as Lucy, if mm -hmm. you will. So, And it says most everyone is welcome. Most everyone is welcome. Who do you believe is not welcome? They let Richard Tremaine in, so I don't know. I think I mean, that like, the him. bar they, has to be so they low. They didn't even let him in. They made him judge. Yes, they did let Well, that's where how he's in. That's what I mean. They didn't just let him in. They let him judge. <laughs> I don't know. Like, Are there any Are there any women in Twin Peaks that they just wouldn't let in that we know about? No. 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 Maybe yeah. someone who's not from. That, that's the thing. Like, the wording is so Most suspect. everyone. Is Evelyn Marsh allowed to <laughs> come from prison to go <laughs> dance and give her speech? <laughs> I don't know. It's a question. It's a question. Uh, in October, there's a Twin Peaks Halloween parade that sounds fascinating, one could say, couldn't they, Professor? Uh, um, fascinating. That's most certainly a word in my dictionary, uh, especially for this, uh, where you get to see all sorts of floats in this beautiful little parade. And um, there's someone who did stand atop a float if you will, uh, dressed up as like a druid. Uh, Khalil, uh, top three potential people dressed up as druids, go. Emery Battis, Amory Battis, Battis Emery. Uh, unfortunately, uh, it seems that you are correct. Uh, it is Amory Battis. So depending on how you want to spell his name, <laughs> Emery or Amory, depending on the source material in question, yep. <laughs> uh, Emery Battis uh, gets a, a random inclusion. You wouldn't expect to hear any more about him after he died on so ceremoniously in the original series. And no, um, it seems that everybody just like wondered why he dressed up as a druid, but still with his recent death, it's just a great loss to some but especially for the parade. So it seems like this was just kind of like Amory Battis was like a front person inside of this that people would recognize and be like, yeah, there's the druid. It's it's the wording of his recent death is a great loss to some. It really implies this idea that like most people are not that concerned. Most people are not concerned. It's still listed enough inside of this. But it unfortunately makes you in the parade sense, we care. It really makes it seem like Emory Battis, eh, who cares? Except for the fact that he used to be the druid. <laughs> That's the way this reads. No, he would just stand as a druid and everyone would just watch him on top of the horn float. 
And given given uh, Emery Battis's particular pro- proclivities and kinks that we learned about with the the vacuums and everything else, I don't know if this is also part of that, or <laughs> if or if this was completely unrelated. Um, we also have so much like weird mysticism happening in the woods. I don't think Emery Battis actually is part of any sort of secret organization. Oh, like you don't that. think he's part of the Circular Lodge or the I Owl Lodge? I don't think he's an actual the... druid. No, I don't think he knows any actual <laughs> witchcraft. Uh, Emery or... Battis is a dugpa, maybe. No. He's a junior Dugpa. <laughs> if they had like a little junior club or whatever. That's where you get your first tiny stick. Douglets. <laughs> little Douglets. Little Douglets. Um, the other costumes for the adults are still pretty weird though. Mixed in are normal ones, but it says adults come dressed up as Greek satyrs and peg-legged pirates. Ogres, serial killers, and wicked witches are also very popular. And so, it's- so it's going off like saying like, yeah, these are also very popular, but just imagine like a town filled with Greek satyrs and pig lake pirates. And like what also is weird is serial killers. It doesn't specify like movie serial killers, like real ones. So if someone's dressing up as like, you know, a horror movie slasher character like Leatherface or Jason Voorhees. I'll be like, okay, that's one thing. But if someone's dressed up as Ted Bundy specifically. Maybe they just misheard it and it was just more so serial killer. So it was just like someone dressed up as the big Trix the Rabbit ready to like <laughs> swipe away people's cereal Would at be all costs. that better or worse than everyone dressing know. up as real like people? I don't know. Again, it's not just like one-off. It's it's a popular costume choice is what also gets me. It's very popular. And then it goes on, quote, it's a treat to hear the preschoolers wailing in terror at the effect of the adults' vivid costumes and convincing betrayals. Everyone gets a good-natured laugh to see the toddlers so terrified. Again, who is this author? <laughs> what are they trying to paint Saul Worman as? The TED Talk person. I think that maybe it's also a reflection of the town. Like, we don't see that many children. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's a reason for that. They've all ran away. That. It's possible. <laughs> Then there's also a part where it talks about Dougie Milford, you know, before his passing. Dougie used to, quote, muse on the restorative powers of terror and darkness. With his brother, Dwayne, by the way. Yes. So that means that together, these brothers, this was a time for them to come together. Yeah. And muse over darkness. And then when they were done, they could go fight over some donuts and grape Kool-Aid over in the cafeteria with Ooh, everyone and else. And hot chocolate. And hot chocolate and coffee. Yep. Also available as coffee because but we have to know every time coffee is available. I will say there's probably no pancakes happening there. I think Big Ed ate all of them. No, so, no, no, that's around a different time. That's the lumberjack feast, you yeah, know? Yeah, the next thing. It's, it's like a monthly thing, though. Yeah. Like, this is how it happens I don't all think the they time. have any more pancakes left. I think literally all the pancake batter is gone. All the syrup in the trees is gone. Because in that time of the lumberjack feast, They have this huge feast that has every single sort of breakfast item you can think of. Bat, pancakes, two types of waffles, eggs, prepared in every possible way. It's just an array of breakfast. That's if you're great. a fan of breakfast, That's it's amazing. Great. And this happens at least once a month. That is so good to hear. You know how Big Ed is a force of nature? You know we learned about that? <laughs> Last March, apparently, we this learned a book, lot. This book, this book... If you too, if you believe this, if this is canon, if to this you. is if this is truth, Big Ed ate one hundred and ten pancakes in twenty minutes. How much pancakes is that per minute? That is five and a half pancakes per minute. Now, five no, and a no, half pancakes per minute. Now, here's the thing. Okay, that was a really good timed <laughs> sound effect. You accidentally hit that, didn't you? <laughs> yeah. Okay, that's the sound I would hear if I saw a man inhaling these pancakes. 
He, that's if it's a constant rate. That's a constant rate. It could be like 20 pancakes one minute and then one pancake here. Regardless, that's a lot of like consuming like that stuff. He's got to like swallow at certain points. I don't think he chews. I think he just Kirby puts his mouth over them and just like consumes. I don't, I don't know if it's better or worse if he has them with syrup. If there's syrup, they can maybe slide down a little better, but then there's more weight of food that he is consuming. <laughs> so I don't know if, if it should be dry pancake or syrup pancake. <laughs> What's the better outcome? I don't think we should strategize this because I don't want anyone to die from pancake. No, this is such an absurd number. Like, if it said that he ate 30 pancakes in 20 minutes. Okay? Okay. I'd be, I'd be fine with that. Okay. It'd be a lot. Yeah. I would not recommend you eat 30 pancakes in 20 minutes, but I could theoretically see it if, you know, being possible. 50, it'd be an interesting feat being like, oh, whoa, that's, that's a Guinness a Book World Record right there, right? That's nice. 110 <laughs> pancakes in 20 minutes <laughs> is unnerving. Big Ed, like, <sighs> you don't have time to, like, pause between them. You have to constantly be consuming the cake pans. So I plugged in some numbers, Khalil, and if we think to ourselves, like, if it's at least, like, a half-inch sort of, like, tall-style pancakes, and it's about 74.5 inches, sure, if you stack them up, like, from the bottom <laughs> upward, we still wouldn't have about an edge size, but if you put this pancakes on their other axis, if these are about silver dollar-sized pancakes, um, it would take about 18.625, about that many pancakes, before reaching a uh, big head height. You see, so the, just the sheer idea of a dimensions of pancakes fitting into this man. He's Kirby. He's Kirby. <laughs> big Ed is Kirby. Big Ed is Kirby. It has been confirmed today with the Twin Peaks Wonderful and Strange podcast. Big Ed is Kirby. If there was ever a reason to doubt the canonicity of this book, it is this? <laughs> it is the pancake ratio. <laughs> Scholars to this day debate the pancake ratio. <laughs> oh my God. It is wild. But also what is wild is that it uh, says that everything is delicious. And of course, coffee, it's legendary. Held rain, shine, or snow. So eat, like no matter what weather, come by and enjoy this. But you should call 911 for more information. Do not call 911 for more information, listener. Is that, is that a joke? Because you're going to eat so many pancakes, you're going to be in mortal peril? Anyone should be in mortal peril when it comes to that many pancakes. Not Big Ed. <laughs> Maybe that's why he's sorry. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> what right. have I become? <laughs> My sweetest syrup. Every pancake I know goes away in the end. And I can have them all. And now I've walked the line. That's the line being the yes. circle of pancakes because the you are Johnny Cash. Of pancakes. Yep. You know what else is in a circle, Professor? Um, you. Wow, that's a kind of insulting thing to say. <laughs> I am gaining some weight recently, but no reason to do that to me. Uh, cherry pie. Cherry pie is in a circle. In fact, all pies are usually in a circle. I guess you could technically make a pie in another shape, and it would still be a pie. If you made a triangular pie... It would still be a pie, right? There's all sorts of recipes in this. Yes. Pie, coffee, donuts. In any case, you can literally bake things from this book. According to a Reddit thread I was reading, apparently the cherry pie recipe is decent. Uh, I was just reading comments, and especially, <laughs> especially the crust is quite good. Oh, nice. Uh, Overall, it makes a decent cherry pie from what I was reading. Oh, 
Fantastic. I know. I didn't do my research. See, if I had done my research, do I would have made the pie. You would have gone. Apparently, in Los Angeles, there's a place called Dupars uh, around the time of this book was made. Yeah. So you should have gone to Dupars, found the restaurant, tried the pie, and then tell the listener. I know. What am I even doing over here? What are we? You know, even I didn't even. I pod? did not even try the cream of huckleberry soup. A, a soup that has me really curious. So listed in the daily specials for the Double R Diner at one particular day is cream of huckleberry soup. Yeah, there's like corn chowder earlier, split pea soup, Beverly barley soup. You know soup, what those things uh, have in common? Vegetable noodle soup. They're all soups. Those are all normal <laughs> soups. Okay. Cream of huckleberry is not a normal soup. I tried Why? Googling this and I could not find this. There's cream of mushroom. There's cream of onion. There's cream of celery. There's no cream of huckleberry. You don't cream now, a berry. You don't have berry soup. Well, then how do you pick cream an overall mushroom then? I don't know. I'm not a cook. Maybe I'm it's just, just a way to prepare it. And then they just did huckleberry instead. I don't think that it's just like they're mashing the huckleberries until they become a soup no, cream. No, I'm just saying like you don't typically have a cream-based soup with berries in it. That's very strange, and I can't say it would work out very well. Well, apparently uh, it doesn't work out so well because Sunday is leftovers. The day immediately afterwards. I eat more huckleberry <laughs> soup. I'm gonna fight that I would start huckling up those berries if you know what I'm saying, because I'd be I'd be regurgitating them because it'd be disgusting. I love how also six days a week coffee is served except on Sundays. It's iced tea. Yeah. Six out of seven days you get coffee. That's the day but the just Cooper not does not Sunday. go does not go to the diner on Sunday. Religion leaves Twin Peaks and so huck so does God coffee. is your coffee on Sunday. God is your coffee. <laughs> Um, there's a, there's information about the wagon wheel bakery, which apparently makes the town's donuts, like all the town's donuts, which is a historical feat considering that this town supposedly eats more donuts per capita than like anywhere else, at least in the United States. And uh, it's run by an old married couple who don't have kids and quote, their nieces and nephews are only interested in the money and no one in the town likes them. Yeah, apparently there's not really any big uh, people who are going to continue the lineage. In so. universe, in universe, this is an official guide released by the town to promote the town of Twin Peaks and it just disses the family and nephews of this bakery. Khalil, I'm going to tell you right now, there is actually a place that serves directly sweets that's in this exact position from where we're at right now. I don't n think any listener is going to investigate our location to go to every store that is owned by two elderly couples. Yeah. Uh, that overall their skin do not are not interested in the family business. Uh, and if you manage to, I mean, congratulations, stalker. Congratulations. You're a really good stalker. You are really good at this. But no. Um, Your award is Huckleberry Cream Soup. It's just as sad as when I heard of these real-life couple. Yeah. And their overall business kind of like disappearing so over time. So you think time. it'd be fair in the town's uh, guidebook to just insult their family and say no one likes their <laughs> no one likes their nephews? Definitely. Definitely. It's appropriate. That's that's not a, a yeah, of course. Of course. It this is an access guide to the town. This is not a good guide. It is not a happy guide. So it's an visitors, access guide. Visitors need to know about you these people how bad the they history are. History of these yeah, people. Yeah, sure. We also get to access the jukebox list of what apparently is included at the Double R's songs. Yes, uh, with like there's a lot. There's a lot, and the fact is that Norma has all these songs that she listens to probably in the background as people are eating. A lot of them being fairly wanting songs. A lot of them being love songs, and a lot of them um, being pretty just in the sad end. It probably doesn't help her overall situation with Ed. There's a lot, of, a lot of peculiarities with this list. Um, I was reading elsewhere, I think it was on a Reddit thread, that jukeboxes like the model used in the Roadhouse do not go to the letter Z 
like this jukebox appears to do from the guide, which would imply that either they have a, like, they're either an alternate universe where their jukeboxes are built different or it's an error in the guide. Um, if you take the guide to be gospel, one, Ed, Ed Hurley eats 110 pancakes in 20 minutes, and two, that this they have a magical, like, defying reality jukebox that, you know, has more songs than you would imagine being allowed. <laughs> Among these songs, like you said, a lot of pop hits and some rock hits of the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and 80s. 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, pretty respectably here. Um, which makes sense. This is, you know, set in 1991. There's, you know, it's not going to go past that too much. Uh, ZZ Top's Sharp Dressed Man is on there. Don't worry about why I'm mentioning it. Just, it is. Right, Professor? Right. ZZ Top's Sharp Dressed Man is on the jukebox. Yep. Also on there is Never Gonna Give You Up by Rick Astley. That, damn it, I was the one I was going to bring up. <laughs> Some tracks are just called instrumental. Maybe that's normal for jukeboxes. I'm not 100% sure. There's a lot of ones that are just labeled instrumental. Uh, notably... There is not on there a few tracks that are known to be canonically in the Double R Diner. Namely, the track that Bobby plays in the pilot, that's not on the jukebox list. That would be I'm Hurt Bad. It was the same song they used as an industrial symphony. There is no I'm Hurt Bad on there. Notably, there is nothing by Julie Cruz on there, even though Julie Cruz has been confirmed to be the name of her singer from James Hurley's blurb. Yes, and in truth, when it comes down to this, it's also the question that we had early on about, say, for example, the music in Audrey's head. Yeah, what Audrey's is actually theme, there? Audrey's dance is not on there. Um, so, yeah. I'd love the fact if there was, like, Audrey's dance in there, and then yeah. Audrey goes to play Audrey's dance. It would it would be something, wouldn't it? Um, but, yeah, no, uh, James Hurley in his blurb says his one of his favorite singers is Julie Cruz, so we know that she is Julie Cruz in Twin Peaks. She is not just the Roadhouse singer. But, again, that implication <laughs> is that she's not on the jukebox there. Even though I'm hurt bad, what is in the show is confusing. Also, you mentioned earlier that Big Ed kept getting brought up with the natural disasters and nature in general. Yes. Jerry Horn keeps getting brought up with the food. He's apparently <laughs> the guy that recommends all the food from around the world, the wines, which means that if he is still being recommended this way and not posthumously, he wasn't killed by that chef in that episode. <laughs> he lives on in this book, supposedly. It's a great addition to the character in which we keep seeing him bring food onto the set, whether it is a uh, nice bread or a cheese, cheese pig. pig. Yep. Uh, I, I thoroughly enjoy that detail that mm -hmm. he's just going all over the place, and that's one of his side ventures, literally bringing back foods that would make this place all the more unique. Whether or not it's a plan for the horns in general or just something Jerry insisted on Ben could mm -hmm. just be a fun, a uh, little bit of a thought process in general, but no, it, it adds to the Jerry character. You might want some cheese pigs along when you're watching the big game. The big game referring to the only sport that is in the town of Twin Peaks. Football. 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 The sports section just is football. It's only football. It literally Look, is. Know it says sports right here, uh -huh. and it's one, two, three, four... Five, six, seven. Even seven more than fishing. Even more than fishing. Even more which than is kind of wild because fishing is a bigger part of Twin Peaks than football as what, far as no, the show. What are you talking about? Because it's specifically this one game of football. Yeah, it's one year at least. one year yeah. of football, in which everyone seems to talk about, which guess what? You can get pictures of very small, like... Hawk, very small. Excuse me, very small what? Very small hawk. You I did not hear hawk. I heard hawk. a different word in there. I said hawk, I, silly. When you, listen, when you edit this you, podcast episode, you can listen and you, you can see you what you see, said. You can, you can see, see, the see what Ed. you said. You can see the big Ed. You can see the Harry S. Truman. You can see Hank Jennings. You can see Ralph Royster, famous okay, Twin Peaks you're character. You're, you're skipping Ralph over the, Royster. You're skipping over the most important one. 
Ralph. No, I got to him. Ralph Royster. Oh, no, Thadalonius Barker, also known as Toad. Toad, known as the roving defensive back. There's a few others on the list, too, that are not necessarily known entities for sure, but they may be related to other characters in the show. Uh, there's a Don Pinkle. There's a Jim Jacoby. There's a David Tremaine, a Vince Brennan, and just don't worry about it, uh, a Joe Hastings. Don't. Don't worry about that one too much. Why shouldn't I worry about that? Why is this name more important than Ralph Royster? I'm just saying that Joe Hastings, you don't know what I'm talking about when I bring up the name Joe Hastings, whereas Brennan, Tremaine, Jacoby, and Pinkle are names you do recognize. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, like Ralph Royster, the same Come category. On. Khalil, why are you doing this to me? Apparently, the first forward pass in the Great Northwest was thrown by then high school freshman mayor. Well, okay, he wasn't the mayor at the time. <laughs> he's the freshman, but he became a mayor later. Dwayne Milford. He's been bored into the role. He's, he's, he's been the mayor ever since so, being in the womb. So Dwayne Milford was the first one to throw a forward pass in the Great Northwest. He took the ball from the center and lofted it over four yards to his brother Dougie, who unfortunately fell over. Dougie ate dirt. Dougie ate dirt. In more ways than one. We get more info on Hank, the much maligned and I think much done dirty character. Uh, quote, the gifted but troubled Hank Jennings refused to practice and eventually refused to join the huddle. But he could run easily the most gifted of the team, but with an attitude that borderline antisocial. Hank would stand six or seven yards away from the huddle and wait for the team to come to the line of scrimmage. Then, through an elaborate set of hand signals from the head of the Science and Industry Club, who was receiving the plays from Coach Hobson's son, Sammy, Hank would be given the play. And this goes on to say, most of the time, Hank was unstoppable. I just like the elaborate measures to which he's going to be avoiding contact with these people, that he is so adamant on not talking to his team. I love of the, Bookhouse Boys. I love more so like the history of Hank inside of this overall. Really, the the football team is the, just the Bookhouse Boys plus Toad, right? Yeah, basically. Unless Toad is or the Maybe Bookhouse, Bookhouse Boys. Maybe Bookhouse Boys Toad. I don't know. It's just the football him. jocks. That's all the Bookhouse Boys but, is. But I find especially like Hank to be interesting in this. Not only do we get a lot of character moments with yeah. Hank talked through through these various games, but even later in the season. Hank ends up getting benched, which apparently uh, something happened and yelling was heard in the coach's office before a window broke, uh, before he's told that he's benched for the next game. Right. And apparently afterwards, a mythical rain started and apparently destroyed most farms in the vicinity. And without Hank, apparently they could do nothing more than punt 16 times to be exact. And finally, the coach hops in. Well, apparently, when he's like, when like he's people are trying to talk to him about mm -hmm. why Hank left the game, he just kept going like the damn rain until the day he died. He would simply regard it with the damn rain. For more information, for this game that they tied in, like they won every game except this tie, which without Hank, the sky said no. For more information on this rain, go play the video game Deadly Premonition, highly inspired by the hit television drama Twin Peaks, <laughs> influenced by co-creator David Lynch. Go, Deadly Lynch Premonition available. Deadly Premonition. No, David oh. Lynch created co-created Twin Peaks, which uh, heavily inspired Deadly Premonition, available on your local Nintendo Switch and PC platforms and older gen consoles such as the Xbox 360. Am I get the get the answers for why Hank? I will tell you why the rain is damned in that game, that's for sure. <laughs> that is for sure. Hawk does get some information as well as Hank and uh Hawk 
weird situation. It was the ninth game of the season. Hawk hit his head and started misquoting Hamlet, which had been his homework assignment. And after misquoting Hamlet, he's proceeded to, during the game, run with the ball in the wrong direction, but no one could stop him. Quote, I remember shouting to him about going the other way, and he said something about life being a path, and he started upfield. It seemed to others like a bizarre but planned strategy. And they'd, uh, they'd tired out the team's defense in this method because Hawk kept running the wrong way and the team got just so exhausted that when he was able to turn around, he got the ball to the end zone and win the last game. Good job, Hawk. Good job, Hawk. Hawk also in this book is described as the son of a Zuni shaman. And he has a unique combination of pragmatism and mysticism. I'll also mention that this has also, when it gets to the point of this uh, weird run, like w- there's already interesting details with Hawk, right? With the overall uh, areas in which like it does bring up the Zumi mm-hmm. Shaman detail. He, he's most certainly a strange figure. I love the fact that when it comes to his final play of the game, it's the only real point where they get really wild with the editing of the text. Mm-hmm. Because I'll, it comes off like a newspaper sort of headline. Uh, and like he began to run the wrong way, he began to run the wrong way. Mystery play saves peak season, and the best thing in our lives, and we did it together. Being the three quotes, yeah, that are so big, yeah, it's so big, Cleal, yeah. Do you think that this is so big for Hawk? It's as big as Big Ed with those pancakes. <laughs> I um, I'm gonna also do this thing where you're probably gonna hate me for it, but uh, for those listeners who have experienced all of Twin Peaks, but especially listeners who have experienced the secret history of Twin Peaks, which we're going to get to soon, Mark Frost's book. Uh, I can't comment on this directly right now because it would involve spoilers. But if you have read the secret history of Twin Peaks, there is a really interesting thread on the Twin Peaks Reddit that I would recommend to you that I stumbled upon while I was doing research for this pod. The thread is called More Evidence That Mark Frost Really Was Paying Attention to Deep Lore When He Wrote the Secret History. This thread is posted by the user Tom Jode 2020 ad I would highly recommend you check this article out, this Reddit thread, if you have also experience the secret history of Twin Peaks for some commentary that does relate to this book that I can't get into right now, but wish I could. I'm happy you bring it up to the listeners. I just have to stare at you and be like, yep, everything that you this know is what and happens say when, is true. When I do my research. This is what happens. <laughs> How dare you bask in the glory. And while you are basking in my glory, perhaps there is another deity you wish to bask in the glory of? Not really. Or maybe not. Not really. Maybe you Maybe you do, maybe you don't. I don't. Either way, Twin Peaks has many opportunities, you know, because it is a spiritually-minded community. It supports a number of churches representing the world's major religions as well as, quote, a few sort of the iffy ones. Yeah, this is the quote from the book. A and few I find sort of iffy ones. Yeah, yep. there's a lot of fun details inside this. And may I tell you right now, uh, yes, every time you get uh, coffee recommendations uh, on all of these uh, religious areas. So just in case coffee and religion go hand in hand in this, you have options available. The Lutherans in the town consist of the Palmer household, the Briggs household, and the Jennings household. Yes, uh, including new character Pastor Theodore Hellmark. Uh, apparently, you can well, not con- new character because we saw him at the funeral, right? Oh, that I would, was how I, would, I would assume. Oh, very Considering well. the Palmers, they would have had their uh, funeral. There's sometimes more than one pastor, but this is a yeah. pretty small town I'm with say quite one probably, of a person. Probably, probably. Probably. Still, uh, you can contact them at 555-LUTH. Uh, the Catholics <laughs> the Catholics are the Hurleys, the Pulaskis, and the Packards, among but, others. Which I will make note that uh, this is literally about a half mile north of Big Ed's gas farm. Mm-hmm. So, 
Makes sense why Big Ed would go to the nearest church. Yeah, it makes sense. Save on gas. Save on gas. I'm not, <laughs> from not, his I'm own not questioning his devout faith in the Catholic tradition. Oh. Just saying. Yes, and you can contact that uh, section for, at 555-3333. Okay. And the Trinity themselves. And then the Haywards and the Horns are Episcopal. Yes, over at, uh, amongst the Horns, almost all of Black Lakes and Horns Department Store uh, and the Great Northern Lodge and the Whitetail Falls, it can be seen from this location. Like, apparently this is a big church. And not to mention, uh, coffee is available, but it's expensive. So it, it's a pricey coffee to even make it into this place. But you can contact it at 555-2222. There's also the Baptist, in which is the third Baptist Church of Black Lake. Hmm. Black Lake. I don't think we went over this, but there's no? a place called Black Lake. Are there any notable characters in the Baptist Church? The Log Lady. But she doesn't attend. Oh. It's just half a mile east of the Log Lady's house. This guide says, yes, just go east from the Log Lady's house. So so that's probably why I didn't put it in my notes, because I, I, was, I was confused. Yeah, there's no characters we know of for sure that are Baptist nope. from this guide. But well, Sunday prayers are uh, either led by Nathan Quilp or Oliver Twist. Oliver Twist. Yep, and well, you can contact twist. you could contact them at five 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 Lord. Well, <laughs> I love the phone numbers yeah, in this. Yeah. Well, the twist here for Oliver and others is that yeah, the log lady does not attend because she is too busy attending the other category. In the other category is the Twin Peaks Theosophist Society or Theosophist. Not sure exactly how to say it. And uh, they meet somewhere outdoors every third Wednesday following the new moon, except when there is a blue moon, at which time the society skips a service and instead holds a poetry blowout on the shore of Black Lake. Again, conveniently nearby. Conveniently nearby, yes. Committed to revelation of divine principles and first causes, Pete Martell and the Log Lady are members. And there's a rumor going around that Dale Cooper once attended, but the FBI denies this. Mm. Now, did he attend before or after he returned from Glastonbury Grove? Remains to be determined. It might be because the coffee was out of the thermos, rather. And it's usually tepid and cold, so it's not that great at coffee. Not to mention that uh, there's no telephone number listed, so... Dale Bartholomew Coop Cooper. Coopy. But don't call him Coop, that. Call Have him some Coopy. respect. He's FBI. <laughs> He's... Maybe... Maybe. As, he's in the... He might be dead. I don't know if as, that's more or less disrespectful. He may be possessed by a demon. Uh, the book seems to have respect for him. Quote, describing him as, quote, might well have been a magician or a mystic had he not scored a perfect 100 on his Eagle Scout marksmanship test, after which his thinking took a decidedly legalistic turn. It describes how he's unable to escape the memory of a tragic incident in his recent past, which I'm going to assume is the death of Caroline. Coop likes jelly donuts and a good cup of joe. I also like, again, that sort of quick whiplash of, like, mourning a great and traumatic incident that happened recently. He likes coffee! Everyone, uh, coffee's important. When asked his favorite part of Twin Peaks, he says the whole remarkable town, the whole thing, and the Theosophist Society, which we do not hear about in the show, right? Like, this is one of his, this is like, the, he says the whole town... And this. <laughs> and I don't think we got the end this that he, Pete, and the log lady go to. Nope. Not Sometimes every third we Wednesday gotta, or whatever. We it's focus said. on the B plots. Like we can't go to these mysterious societies and so on and learn about the secrets of Twin Peaks. How what fun is in that? What fun is in that? What fun is the mystery? What fun is the mystery? Like and if you need any other help, like trying to like avoid mystery and go somewhere else, might I overall recommend the taxi service inside Twin Peaks that is advertised here. Tim and Tom's Taxidermy. Not only 
Will they taxi you around the community? Uh, quote, they are a little less reliable, but the brothers mean well. It helps to give them a little advance a day notice or two, but they'll take you wherever you want to go, spice the trip up with plenty of lore, and charge you a reasonable fare. Not only will they do that for you, they also do have a taxidermy industry that you could, you know, work with as well. So it, perhaps you need to have an animal stuffed. It's a taxi taxidermy service. Yes. Like in case you have like a hunt that you need to stuff in their trunk and maybe get also. There's actually an extensive sort of like blurb. There's a two page spread. Uh, taxidermy. With itself. the caption um, on there, we'll drive anywhere, we'll stuff anything, even a bear. But then they had to have asterisks after those statements. So if you follow the asterisks, we'll drive anyone anywhere within Twin Peaks city limits. We'll stuff anything, even a bear. It has to be dead. So already we're getting uh, some overall fun flavor with these people. Yes. Like not only just for their industriousness, but also for just like that style of business. Let's also put to the point that the driver of the taxi service is blind. Yeah, Tom. And Tom. we do know, we say these people, but we do know one of them, Tim Pinkle. Tim Pinkle and his brother, Tom. Oh, this it's a Pinkle. Yeah, it's Tim Pinkle from I the show. I didn't see Pinkle. Pretty yeah, it's, it's Tim Pinkle. I didn't see Pinkle. Yeah, we can keep going through this loop. We can go through this loop. <laughs> I Pinkle. will trust you that it is a Pinkle. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, Tom it, is blind and Tim just kind of guides them where to go. Uh, the the, yeah, the, yeah, the photo the way, of them is captioned, come ride with us. no. The photo is captioned, come ride and stuff with us. <laughs> I got to say, though, uh, I do adore the image of just like the little stick that's sticking out from the taxi, if you mm. will, as he's just like apparently prodding, if you will, to see if he's going the right direction. Yeah. While in a vehicle. I don't it, enjoy the image of the in-depth taxidermy guide as much because I'm not really into the idea of uh, taxidermy. But it is in-depth. I, I suppose one could learn the basics of taxidermy from the Twin Peaks Access Guide <laughs> if you wanted to. Still, uh, though I didn't see the Pinkle, I still think that at the very least the Tom seems to be a character that would fit very well in at the very least from the more aloof moments in like Twin Peaks. Very well as just like a character just slightly mentioned. Only a few photographs, a few things here and there. It's... It, it's fu It's a good sort of like detail that makes this very much still feel Twin Peaks, but also I kind of wish that I saw Tom. Since you are doubting me so much, I'm going to read. I've mentioned this before in a previous episode, I'm pretty sure. I think it was yes. one of the lookbacks. But I'm going to reiterate for you in case you need this. Yes. From the Twin Peaks wiki, Tim Pinkle was a dance choreographer, pine weasel expert, and home car salesman. He was also a taxidermist and owned Tim and Tom's taxidermy with his blind brother, Tom. But where's the source on that one? Um, it is with a footnote. Click the footnote, and it says Twin Peaks Access Guide to the Town. But I'm only seeing the name Tim. Okay, maybe. Maybe, maybe they saw the name Tim, and then someone quoted that. Or maybe I'm missing a pinkle it, somewhere. It, it, it's Tim Pinkle in the photo. It's it's clearly Tim it's, Pinkle. It's a guy with goggles. It's Tim Pinkle. It's a man with I'm goggles in his sorry. face it's... and his smile. You tell me that this is the Tim Pinkle? I would know Tim Pinkle anywhere. <laughs> I will say, okay, okay, here's, yeah. here, 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 let me uh, contribute this. Uh-huh. In the credit section, okay? In the credit section, to make sure that there isn't people like me going insane out there. Okay. Look up David Landers. Is that the actor for Tim? Because it's listed in special thanks to David Landers yes. as Tim. Yes, this is the same actor. Clearly, this is a Maddie Ferguson and a Laura Palmer situation that I can still deny and no. say that this is just the Literally, thing. the book has a character named Tim 
who is the same actor as Tim Pinkle, <laughs> and it says the taxidermy. I mean, it, it's clearly that. Professor, you do not trust me. I will go down with this ship. Professor, <laughs> would you trust it if it came straight from the Twin Peaks Gazette? What's... What 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 is the Twin Peaks Gazette? What are you speaking of? I'm speaking, I am of, the speaking guide. of a thing within the Access Guide that left me very confused. <laughs> yes, there's so actually... we get a page in there where it has the February 1991 Volume One Number One issue, and then we have the cover there. And I'm not really sure I understand what this is because I tried googling it, and when you type in the Twin Peaks Gazette, I just find out about the fictional mag, the fictional newspaper. I tried Googling it, but all I could find was the fictional newspaper, but it seems like this was a real thing that was sold. Yeah, it's the only one that's not like 555 numbers. It's a 1-800 number, which would be dangerous if they were legally yeah. like, putting these up there because it's 1-800-during-the-time-don't-call-this-number, uh, 626-TWIN, uh, in which you would receive 12 monthly issues plus two unique gifts for becoming a, a subscriber, a Twin Peaks Sheriff's Department coffee mug, and your own address in Twin Peaks, all for $29.95. Your own address in Twin Peaks. I don't. I'm curious. What does that mean? What's the second gift? Because what's concerning is that if the issue is taken to be in universe accurate, um, one, the Twin Peaks Gazette is not on volume one, number one by 1991. It's been around for decades longer because we know the particular editors as certain Milford. So we know that this thing is not like on volume one, issue one. The other problem is that many of these headlines and pieces of information are incredibly alarming if they are in universe. I mean, what are you talking about? It's just like this bozo in Twin Peaks called Richard Bamer. Yeah, it says involved. highlights of this first issue include an interview with Richard Bamer. Yeah. Not Ben Horn. <laughs> not Benjamin Richard Horn. Bamer. Yep. And Audrey Horn lookalike for photo contest so regular people dressing up as this high school girl well, that's that's a normal creepy. thing and the introduction of regular features like the contest for the gifted and the damned a phrasing that only would make sense to viewers because it's what the one-armed man said <laughs> not to mention like getting an address at twin peaks for only 30 dollars man okay you're that's really a, hung up on that idea really that dale cooper dale cooper wanted that too it's okay it's okay it's 30 bucks on the left side, there is the newspaper and a smiling bag welcomes you, which again, more things that the average person in Twin Peaks would not have the context for. Nope. Help us overturn those large flat rocks of unawareness and that surround us and be astounded of what comes writhing out from underneath. That's a very succinct phrase, I think, that applies to a lot of the themes in this whole entire town and series, right? In a way, help us certainly. overturn those large flat rocks of unawareness that surround us, nothing. and be astounded at what comes writhing out from underneath. Who knows what that means? Uh. <laughs> There's also a uh, thing where Agent Cooper makes Black Tie's best-dressed FBI agent list. Says we were unable to reach Agent Cooper for comment. Makes him suspicious what's happening with Cooper right now. And Agent Bryson's comments were unprintable. We reached Agent Cole in Bend, Oregon, who said, The trout are biting here, too! Which we assume means something relevant in detective lingo. <laughs> I like that joke. Uh, it's so strange, Twin Peaks Gazette, mainly because of the, how much it flirts with, like, in the world versus in our world. Because it it's... acts like, in the article writing, it acts like they were trying to reach Agent Cooper and trying to reach Agent Cole, which would be in-universe. But then it also says they interviewed Richard Bamer, who's the <laughs> actor who plays Ben Horn. I'm just, it doesn't make any sense, and it confuses me, and it worries me. It worries me. It worries me, too. There's a lot of things to be worried about, but as long as we're on a first-name basis, we should be perfectly fine. 
Uh, you are someone who appreciates good phone numbers. So I'm sure I do. You, I'm sure you took some notes on our switchboard operator. Yes, good old McFarley O'Halloran, mm-hmm. in which uh, apparently she was confused by the overall way like things were operated, so she kind of just said, screw that. And nope. so everything inside Twin Peaks, uh, including the phone book, is in alphabetical order of your first name. You get to know each other on a first-name basis because elsewise you'll never find anyone. Yeah, when uh, when she was told that they had a regular phone book, she responded, well, I'm against it. Yep. And just decided just... to be a contrarian. <laughs> it's okay. Sheriff Truman says it teaches to remember some folks. and That's good for, yeah. Good. Yeah, no, no. Apparently, the, 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 everyone's in support of this, and I, I'm scared. It doesn't sound like a very efficient system. It's not as very, no. That's why not. it can't be a town of 51,000. This system would not hold up very well. <laughs> Let's see. We have James. 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 Oh, James with two S's. James with two S's? That's Jane. 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 <laughs> Jane. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. There's also in Twin Peaks a Twin Peaks Timber Players Association communication yes. collaboration thingamabobber. For those uh, aspiring themselves as overall, just, you know, the thespian lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have individuals that do fantastic performances, apparently, and actually are very well regarded. There's actually a few notes that happen through the book mm-hmm. that mention the Timber Players prior to the Timber ver- Players uh, section. The most notable thing, though, uh, for the Timber Players, these people who put on fantastic performances, is that it was organized and founded by Sarah and Leland Palmer. Back in 1974. Yes. Those who are concerned with timelines, you check if that adds up and how that works. Don't. But 1974 is when they uh, when they do this, and they annually perform three plays. Leland Palmer does get a little bit in the book, but again, considering that this is most definitely occurring after his death, they do allude to his death. The book makes no indications that he is also a horrible man. No. Nope. Like, they don't do anything in this book alluding to the idea that he murdered his own daughter. Nope. Instead, it goes on to say how Misty is going to be. Apparently, he was he, a big his part of the His recent demise is a loss to all. Yep. So, either the town doesn't know... Or they're just going to put that back under the flat rock. Put that thing back where it came from. Or so help me. Or so help me. But no, it's like, and just seeing his overall emphasis into things such as overall singing and overall his overall aloofness whenever it comes to theater, it's not only something that I find very fun to add to the character, but also something very interesting to dig deeper into because just imagine like between his time Mm -hmm. with overall dealing with Bob in that sort of horrifying capacity going over to Benjamin Horn in that horrifying capacity on the legal matters but also Mm -hmm. taking time to engage in the theater and apparently in very good regard it's it's a wild picture to paint, to say the least. And he, yeah, not only did he work with Benjamin Horn in the law part, he was actually kind of a bit of a prodigy for that, too. He was elected editor of the University of Washington Law Review in his third year there, gained a reputation as an astounding adroit expert on the subject of international corporate law, which Ben would definitely benefit from, considering his exploits. Yes. It also mentions randomly that Leland liked the song I Saw Mommy Kissing Santa Claus, which... That's notable, I guess, to me, in, in sort of a Someone Freudian of sexual. Yeah. But then also, I could just be, I saw mommy kissing Bob. Yeah, no, 
The it's alternate version. The the what? Two personalities inside of one whole being. One is a costume. One is a face to make a face to prepare the faces that we meet. I don't see anything too big about that. I'm and uh, it worry. says his personal best in Twin Peaks was Laura. His only child is beloved daughter. Again, the town either yeah. doesn't know. When, that, that, that's something that still confuses me about Twin Peaks is that we get you know midish way into season two. Cooper and Sheriff Truman know who killed Laura Palmer. Did the police department cover it up? Like, did the police department not tell people? Because we go to Leland's funeral, no one brings it up. There's the, it's we look the, at this example here, no one brings it up. Did anyone outside of law enforcement know? Probably not. Did James and Donna know? I think James made a comment about it, didn't he? I don't recall a comment. No. We don't listen to James enough. No. But but I mean, like it just feels like hardly anyone knows or acknowledges it, which is kind of insane because the mystery of who killed Laura Palmer was not only a national fascination, it was also like the thing everyone talked about in the town. Jacoby was talking about his personal investigation would last a lifetime. D -d Does Jacoby know? It's still his lifetime, so he's still yeah, working still on lifetime. it. Speaking of Jacoby and lifetimes, Black Lake Cemetery. We saw Jacoby once at the cemetery, poking his head about the darkness. <laughs> there's a, there's an engraving on one of the tombstones here. Uh, Clendon Merveau, his tombstone, it says, I just thought this was funny. It doesn't matter, it's just funny. The tombstone engraving says, Merlin. I told you I was sick. <laughs> I just thought that was funny. Anyway, Jacoby, Jacoby, born in 1934, it says that Jacoby abjured the local positivist school of philosophy by turning instead to Spider-Man and the National Enquirer while growing up in Hawaii. Now, clearly you and I were working out details that apparently, like, I, like... We want to try to map things out so we're not just talking too much about, like, the finite details. So someone who engages in the book can enjoy it. We want to make sure we're giving our thoughts. I was adamant saying, like, yeah, we didn't have to worry about letting people know about Spider-Man. You were very adamant that yeah. we needed to tell people about Spider-Man. Yeah. And the problem, again, is that the people who haven't read all the books and haven't <laughs> seen all the shows and haven't been in... Yeah. So, guys... For those who are following along on the side with me, just remember, Spider-Man, Dr. Jacoby. I'm like the circulars. Just trust me. I'll do my good <laughs> in mysterious ways. You just got to believe in me. <laughs> look, look, I think it's important to put a pin in the idea that Jacoby, he grew up in Hawaii, right? Despite the fact that there was a Jacoby living in Twin Peaks on the football team, maybe not related. There is a Jacoby who grew up in Hawaii and... He, in 1934, was born, and instead of going for the logical positivist, not really asserting the, the science and reasoning, he turned to Spider-Man, the National Choir. Put a pin in the idea that Jacoby turned to conspiracy theories as a child. I can't wait until we finally see something like, I, maybe you've seen it already. I haven't seen No Way Home yet. Maybe Dr. Jacoby is one of the people that appears inside of there from an alternate reality. Dr. Octopus removes mask. Dr. <laughs> Jacoby! <laughs> He balances the right and left side of his brain by wearing those glasses we've seen so many times, here referred to as rose and aqua. Rose-tinted glasses. Quite literally rose-tinted glasses and water-tinted. <laughs> <laughs> he sees things in fond memories and liquid. One is fond memories and then something that could be clear. referred to as a reality. Clear. Something that's clear. Yeah. It, it's, it's so... I didn't even think about it beforehand, but honestly, it's very poetic in and the description. Fitting. It is. It's fitting for his character. Uh, although I don't know the clear-headedness doesn't prevail often enough. We'll, we'll have to determine that, I guess, ourselves. <laughs> 
Mr. Uh, Jacoby, Dr. Jacoby, Sir Jacoby says his favorite part of Twin Peaks is, quote, the awesome number of dysfunctional families in Twin Peaks and my mailman who argues with each envelope, analyzes the suitability of the stamp. A real case. Jacoby. Jacoby. <laughs> I know you say you disdain these people to Cooper. I thought that was like a private admission. I didn't know you made it very public that you laugh at everyone and mock them. A published book. Yeah. He just like, was he like, yeah, no, my favorite this thing. This man has no fear. I mean, he is right. There is an awesome number of dysfunctional families in Twin Peaks. I That is a true statement. But you're are you helping them or are you laughing at them right now? Yes. Yes. Speaking of doctors... There's a more menacing doctor lurking in the darkness, even darker than the one in the cemetery saying how he laughs at people's misery. Dr. Chainsaw Hands Howard himself. University of Minnesota grad, quote, he learned people will believe almost anything if it's said softly with enough sincerity. Hmm. That's how you keep your family together with lies, isn't it? Who's Howard? (laughs) Howard? (laughs) What do you mean? You called him Howard. Did I? Dr. Howard. <laughs> Dr. Hayward. No, no, his name is... Will, Will, Will Hayward. Doc, Dr. William Howard. No. <laughs> Sorry. The guy with the chain science. You know what I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, no, Dr. Hayward. Um, yeah, so just the idea that he, he says things softly, people believe him. It's manipulation of the finest degree. <laughs> it also lists him ominously as an expert on euthanasia, and I understand to a degree, but this sounds really eerie. Sounds really eerie. No, it's pretty eerie in just general. And the mannerisms that this man will take, the overall... The, the, the belief that if you speak something softly and with enough sincerity, they'll believe anything as a quote yeah. inside of this. And again, euthanasia, the idea of like quietly, peacefully going to sleep and dying and just, just, let, the, just, let, the, just let the mysteries die. Just don't ask too many questions. Don't look too deep into things. Just go to sleep. He also really enjoys the passion play, so I think that automatically just puts you inside the suspicious layer in general. Yeah, not as much as Pete <laughs> with his Annie lore, but it's, it's getting still weird. That's still his best. It's getting weird. It's getting weird. It's been weird. Weird also is the expense report filed by the Twin Peaks Chamber of Commerce. Yeah. For one item in particular to me, no. although there's more, there's more, yeah. but I want to highlight one to start with. Yeah. There's a charge of $460 for security which has an asterisk by it. If you follow the asterisk, it reveals that the security they paid $460 for is Sparky the Watchdog. Yep. Good job, Sparky. I'm glad Sparky is doing a better job than the Bookhouse Boys by keeping the darkness out of the town and keeping it secure and safe. I think the most interesting part about this with the Chamber of Commerce is that the balance is in the negatives. It's in the very high negatives. 422,000. In fact, that's a lot of negative. And the thing is about that is that 505000 of the expenses was apparently a lawsuit pending on sack race and injuries. Like, there was a sack race. I'm so going to assume painful, related to the timber, the timber games, top, maybe? It cost over half a million dollars during the 4th of July picnic. Oh, picnic. Hmm. Yeah, no, it was in the picnic. Yeah. Not to mention, like, that's the thing in which gets them. But probably the lowest, there's a few things that are lower, but very, very few things. But for about $1,000 was recycling expenses, but that one uh, got discontinued because of the excess cost. The $1,000 versus the $500,000 cost of the 4th of July picnic. It seems a lot of it due to the injuries. You know, every time again, this book is the book is supposedly trying to make us want to live in Twin Peaks or at least visit Twin Peaks. 
That's the proposed guide is supposed to. People probably died in that sack race. This, this place sounds awful, right? Like this place sounds actually bad. But as long as we don't think about the bad stuff, it's great. You know, and like it's, for, a, it's a pure place. Just don't think of the bad stuff. Well, and if we just had a place to put all of the bad things, just to take all the bad things and push them somewhere else. May I propose to you, Professor, <laughs> a prison facility in Ghostwood? How do you feel about that? Ah, uh, it's as horrifying as it sounds from what the chart looks like. I, I have a... Low-key, I have a low-key fascination interest with the prison aspect that is in Twin Peaks. It's something I'll elaborate more on later. But, quote, a pet project of nobody really knows who, the proposed maximum security prison to be built on an unspecified... It says sit. Must be site. Unspecified site. Nope, unspecified sit. Does it say sit in the book? Yep, it does. Oh, I just thought my notes were typos. No, there's all sorts of typos On in an this. unspecified site is annually tabled, shelved, and otherwise shot down by the majority of town council members. The firm of DLMF. <clears throat> DLMF? What could that say? stand for? It could stand for Dwayne LaMilford and Milana for Black Widow. <laughs> what? I've got her original last name uh-huh. before the Milford. Okay. Ding. Mm. You just done Milford as two words. <laughs> I'm not silly. I won't separate the Dwayne LaMilford. <laughs> <laughs> no, David Lynch, Mark Frost. Yeah. Clearly, clearly, David Lynch, Mark Frost creations are the architects of the project and have submitted five concepts, but none have been accepted or paid for. Quote, the fight of this may be almost as bloody as the fight of the Ghostwood development project. I think the most interesting part about this is most certainly with that Ghostwood thing in mind is that nobody can tell whose pet project this is. But then it goes on to say Sheriff Truman remains on the fence, but Ben Horn recognizes this as a business opportunity. Yeah, which yeah. puts more questions into what his long-term goals are, if they changed when he went to Carrot Reformation. Questions abound. The design, like you said, it looks very much like a panopticon. It reminds me a lot of, like, the Jeremy Bentham theoretical prison where everyone is being watched at all given times by a central column. It looks like a panopticon. That's interesting to me. It yep. looks very dystopian. Yep. This isn't just a regular prison. Um, does it mention here if it would be a private or public? Like, not public, but you know what I mean? Like, government-owned or... Um, as far as this goes, not too much But itself. if Ben Horn is interested in it, I assume it would be a private venture. It'd be he'd a private be, venture, be but set so to profit. Most, there's most, like, overall facilities when it comes to prisons in the United States. They yeah. are privately owned. Many times. Many, 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 many times. So the like prison-for-profit model seems to be coming yes. into play here. Yeah. yeah, so now it's a now Ben Horn tie. Maybe we could consider two peaks merging into the same place. The good thing about it, though, is that if Ben Horn gets sent to prison, he can still make money off of it. <laughs> he could be his own paying customer. <laughs> uh, yeah, the the book ends with those ads, like you mentioned, but right before those ads is another note of particular interest. One of the most mysterious aspects of the access guide is a letter to Major Garland Briggs. From the Twin Peaks Chamber of Commerce. Uh, Professor, what's the subject of this uh, particular letter? Ungwenfield Observatory. Oh, that name. That name. That name tickles my goatee. No, I think you're just being, like, suspicious and um, overall 
deserve to be in an asylum for no particular reason. You see. Whomst art thou referring us to? I'm not referring to Ungwen Packard, of course. Mm. Not Ungwen Packard. That's at the beginning of this book. In which there's a field observatory named after Ungwen Packard specifically for some reason. The one who was more into the mysticism said there was like these other world space related stuff. Yeah, apparently this is from the Twin Peaks Chamber of Commerce straight to Major Briggs. And for some reason, I don't know why the guy from the Axis Guide has gotten well, the it does hands say, onto it. It does say RE, Twin Peaks Axis Guide. So I don't know if like Major Garland Briggs brought up the Twin Peaks Access Guide and like, yeah, it has a response to that, by the way. Yeah, I believe that I have something that I can provide for this and literally sends them a letter with like everything blacked out. You can see a little bit of letters. You could try to decipher it. Uh, Khalil and I think that there's two eyes really close to one another. So I don't think that it's going to say to it. I think I think the blacked out text is all gibberish. There there are words that look like maybe it could be a thing. Like I thought I saw the word fire, but then right next to it is what looks like Tish or Tio with two eyes. Yep. So regardless, we do have something in which um, it's everything's blacked up except for the words. Nobody knows the trouble we've caused. So considering that this is after presumably the end of season two, right? Yep. This is especially ominous. What isn't especially ominous in the book? What isn't? And also, why is this being published in the official guide of the town? Was this published in the guide? Like, in canon, right? In lore, is this part of the guidebook or not? Because I assume the advertisements at the last, last page are not supposed to be in in canon, in-universe. Either A, there's something suspicious going on with secret societies, especially if there's anyone involved in the Twin Peaks Chamber of Commerce. Mm -hmm. Or B, there's a lot of dumb people in the Chamber of Commerce because they decided, yes, um... They're going to have the great security of Sparky the Watchdog be their only expense. It, it does make me wonder how much we're supposed to believe is in-universe and how much isn't. Because, again, there was that newspaper we mentioned. But there's also the ads at the end. It can't all be in-universe. But that letter, I don't know if it's supposed to be in-universe or not. I would imagine you wouldn't want to publish that letter publicly. It seems private. It seems very private, yes. But uh, I really enjoy that. I think I don't want to see it overdone, but I do enjoy the mystery of that and the sort of vague, ominous note of nobody knows the trouble we've caused. Professor, we have caused so much trouble today by talking about this book. We have opened our eyes unflinchingly to the white moose that is truth, mm -hmm. one could say. Mm -hmm. And I'm about to throw three more white moose at you as well. <laughs> there's only the one. We've established there's I only the one. I cloned it. What? I have cloned You've it. You've cloned the ghost moose. I didn't say it was a ghost. They just said it was a spiritual white sacred moose. They did not say it's a ghost. What? Spot. It died. You, you of little faith. So I have three wonderful and strange questions of the week for you, Professor. Yes. Number one. Number one. How number. seriously do you take this book as regards to canon? Is this fan fiction? That's my question. How canon is this to you? How canon is this? I would say that this book itself is pretty fitting again. Like, is this, is this official? Like, is this is this as true to Twin Peaks as The Secret Diary of Laura Palmer or Firewalk? It's as me? official as it could come around the time it was out. Yeah, because it wasn't written by David Lynch and Mark Frost, but they were approving of it. It got approved by them. Mm-hmm. And it was also being written by such people as Mark Engels and Harley, Harley Payton, people who were, you know, key to the show. Yes. So it was written by 
you know, some of the showrunners, and it was approved by the co-creators. Yes. So, canon? As I know canon he, as it was at the time, I'm pretty sure there will be material that conflicts with it, but overall... Oh, why would you think that? Why would I ever think about that? It was kind of for at least its time. And that's always, you know, the thing with us, as we've said before on pods, we're, we're more questioners of canon. You know, we don't think that uh, the author's word is, 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 is necessarily the only truth. Yeah, no, that's my there's so word. so many authors. It's my word that's the only truth. There's so many... I make the t- Twin Peaks. There's so many people writing for Twin Peaks and being involved in it. That's canon if you want it to be. All of it is canon if you want it to be, or none of it is. I think only Twin Peaks Episode Eight is canon. Everything else is not canon. <laughs> That's valid, man. That's valid. Cheers. Cheers to you. Second question, how essential is this book? How essential is this like, book? Like, how, for a Twin Peaks fan, right? Because I assume that, you know, there's kind of striations. Twin Peaks fan, most of them finish the series. Yes. Makes sense. Many of them will go on to watch Fire Walk with me. Many of them will go on to watch The Return. The, the third season, if you want to think of it that way. Those are obviously Twin Peaks. Yes. Less people, but still a fair number, are going to look at The Secret Diary of Laura Palmer because that book is still in print. That recently, in a few years ago, had that new audio version with the actor Cheryl Lee doing the voice work for Laura Palmer. Yes. Those seem pretty, you know, it seems like a pretty important book considering it's still in print. Yes. This book is no longer in print. Mm-mm. And I don't think it's as popular as the things I've mentioned so far. My question for you is that if someone is listening to our podcast right now and they have not read this book before, we've gone over some of the things we've encouraged you to read it because we think it's a fun book, but how essential is it? How important is this book? If you are a fan of Twin Peaks in general, like uh, its overall humor, its overall environments, and if you enjoyed season two, I'd say that this is essential. Mm -hmm. I say that digging deeper into the overall world around and having that sort of fun environment to play with, especially when it comes to speculation, I think that Twin Peaks' access guide is something that really fits that mold very nicely. And I say, go for it then. If you're someone who tends to be more so a little bit more away from that humor and uh, that happens, especially whenever it comes to season two, I would say probably not. Like, this, this is easily skippable enough. You can just go ahead and stick with um, the overall series. Mm-hmm. You can enjoy also Fire Walk With Me, but not need much need for it. For me, it's essential, especially because, as I mentioned towards the beginning of the podcast, I love material like this because, as someone who plays tabletop RPG yeah. games, this is just a fun uh, bit of flavor that I could see someone using, including myself, into one of these scenarios. This is, this is a lore junkie kind it's of. It's a lore junkie, yes. And it's going to have stuff that is is not going to be readily accessible like on a like on the wiki. You know, it's going to have stuff that's it does actually still have a utility, I would say. Um to just whip out and look at some of the pictures, some of the factoids. Yes, absolutely. Um not to mention I think the construction of the book too. It, it it's kind of again shaped like a travel book. It's it's very narrow. Well, you could it's tall and thin, how you, you could say stuff it. it into your front pocket just like anyone would if they, say for example they were walking around Twin Peaks, which would be very difficult because Twin Peaks stuff is all so separate apart from one another yeah. that you're only going to get a majority from Snoqualmie. Uh, and this th- will not be useful for Snoqualmie. This is not a separate question, it's kind of a connected sub question. Uh, I'm going to cheat and say that. So when you're saying it's essential for those lore junkies, would you say that it is as essential as the Secret Diary of Laura Palmer or Fire Walk with Me? It depends what you're going in for. Mm. If you are a completionist like I am whenever it comes to enjoying all sorts of content that especially makes you hungry or thirsty, mm. yes. Yes, 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 yes. If it's something in which you, again, aren't vibing with the overall sense of humor when it ever comes to, again, season two, this is more season two humor in this. 
I, I am someone who likes making lists and ranking things and considering things in terms of that hierarchy. So for me, put to the question, I would put this lower than The Secret Diary of Laura Palmer in the sense that if you're not a big reader and you want one Twin Peaks book and you're asking me which one should you read, I would tell you The Secret Diary of Laura Palmer. But if, like you said, you're hungry and thirsty for more Twin Peaks, this is good. This is still something I would recommend you check out. Yes, there's no, uh, honestly, like, looking into Laura Palmer specifically, uh, it is very, I think that the Secret Diary is fantastic, especially whenever it comes towards, like, a first-person perspective on some of these mythical elements, as well as digging into the Palmer household. Mm -hmm. But when I'm thinking about Twin Peaks, I'm thinking of usually the, the town as a whole itself. And I like the microcosm approach of Laura. I think it does a lot for her character. Um, it does a lot for Fire Walk With Me, but I think the book is a good companion piece to the film. Yeah. Um, I also think that in terms of the writing structure, it feels like a more polished book. Mm -hmm. This one does, like you said, have some typos throughout it. There are some moments where we can't tell if it's an error or if it's a deviation, if it's on purpose. I feel like it's it's a more polished product, The Secret Diary. Mm -hmm. um, but again, the, the guide is good stuff. I'm glad we checked it out, Professor. Cheers. Last question I have for you is that if we were to take this guide as 100% accurate to a real town, if this was real, and you were reading this guidebook, where would it make you want to go? Uh, probably the overall places to dine in or the overall places to stay. There's literally a point in the book where you can stay at a location where there are themes for the room, such as Wizard of Oz. Like, that seems pretty big, doesn't it? Not to mention it just seems like a fun overall opportunity there. Um, the, all, honestly, all the food looks great. I want some food in my mouth, maybe not 100 plus pancakes, but I'll still take food any time of the day. You know where else you can get food? At can't, a drive-thru. A Mulholland drive-thru. What's a Mulholland drive-thru? Mulholland drive, drive? Funny you should mention it. No, you just mentioned funny it. Funny you should you. mention it, because we're going to drive through Mulholland Drive next time. What does any of this mean? On the wonderful and strange Twin Peaks logcast. Excuse me, help. What? What's happening? Well, you just wouldn't believe what that kangaroo did to this courtyard. Ha 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 ha! Ha ha!